Off the ball. If it was me, you'd absolutely love to be 17 up as opposed to being 17 points down. There's no upside to being 17 nil down at that stage, you know? It's a shocking start. Subscribe to the rugby stream on the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition available now. Welcome along. It's Thursday morning. It's OTBAM, and we're here all the way through until ten o'clock. Kathleen is here. Kathleen, good morning to you. Good morning, guys. Shane is here. Shane, how are you? One of our things. It's uh, it's not Jose Mourinho's world. It turns out anything but Jose. So in the build-up to this game, Jose Mourinho was talking about how he is going to end up potentially at Real Madrid or Paris Saint Germain. If you are involved with Real Madrid or Paris Saint Germain, and you're watching the football last night and the aftermath of the game. And you choose Jose Mourinho as the manager of your pristine, precious jewel of a club. Well, then you deserve everything that's coming for you. Oh, it was a farce last night. I sat down to watch the Europa League final. I was like, this is going to be exciting. Jose against uh, the experts of the Europa League in Sevilla. The build-up was so good as well. Like, the atmosphere looked class, the fans. Yeah. Oh, everything was perfect. Set up perfectly for a brilliant game. It, like, it was an exciting game for some parts, but then it just tapered off into this farcical yellow card extravaganza where Anthony Taylor was I don't know probably having the the, the scariest night of his life um, Michael Oliver as fourth official probably the busiest night of his fourth official career uh, it was just one of those nights where you're just like this is insanity they're, they're on the Roma bench remonstrating every single tiny minuscule decision um, and, and the yellow cards being thrown around uh, like willy nilly, it was just. Uh, was there seven yellow cards on the bench? There was maybe thirteen or fourteen yellow cards in the game, and all it was uh, like. And then, of course, at the end of extra time, um, Roma feel Eric Lamella should have been given a second yellow for a foul, led to a free kick. Lamella is let off. He ends up taking and scoring a penalty in the shootout for for Sevilla. So look, maybe that one you could argue was a wrong decision. But overall, I actually felt Anthony Taylor handled what was a really difficult night reasonably well I don't think I would have had the patience or composure that he had I didn't have the patience for the game so I dipped in and out and I, I saw when he was given the yellow card to Mancini and it looked to me a little bit like Taylor had lost the run of himself he was screaming at him to come over to him come over to him and then he gave him a warning and then immediately gave him a booking when there was just the next entanglement and you're like I mean yeah. you know like it, you just feel a little bit and then maybe he maybe he regained his composure and he wasn't chasing players around and and shouting at them no I thought like I didn't think considering. so like considering how much Mourinho was at him calling him over every single foul that happened it actually turned into a bit of a joke when I was watching it like how many times is the camera going to flash over to the bench and Mourinho and everyone's just it was almost like a little Mexican wave they just all like rise together and run straight for the line but I thought considering how much fouling was going on Taylor did relatively well like he had so much to keep him busy and he he did lose it like once or twice with players when they weren't listening to him, but it wasn't like a thing that lasted for the whole game. Mm. You know, he kind of got himself back under control. They all just sort of stopped playing football and just had a competition as to who could roll around and like act oh. the most hurt and injured. It would have been a better watch. Like it was such a terrible game by the end of it. Extra time was a phony war. Like at the end, it was like do you know Gaelic Gaelic football or hurling where. Especially Gaelic football, where a team gets a black card, and for that ten-minute period, they 
consistently go down and have their little fouls because the time no. stop. I know, of course. What? I know. You'd no. believe, you wouldn't believe it, would you? Not the true Irish Gales. No, no, never no cheating that. here. Uh, but that that's felt like extra time. It felt like both teams were a, a black card Gaelic football team, and they were just like passing the ball back and forth, going down injured. Nemanja Madic must have had fifty three cramps. Like he just kept going, and the man only came on with one for every time. muscle in his body. He was unbelievably cramped, um, but it was just it was insane. The gesturing from Mourinho, the stat came up last night. He shared five European titles, a record with Giovanni Trapattoni, the only other manager who has five European titles, trying to get to six. Uh, gets his his runners up medal after the match and does his usual thing. Walks away, well away from his uh, Roma players, throws the the medal into the crowd. So someone sitting at home, it's probably sitting on eBay right now. But uh, that's the thing, because like the Roma fans love him, like they worship him. Yeah, they like feel they're so lucky that fact that they got a manager of Mourinho's caliber, or at least with his general CV, to actually come to them and like take over the team. And I was reading a couple of pieces ahead of the game yesterday of like different journalists who were based in the city ahead of the game and like talking to fans, and it was just like all hail the king, basically. Which Caesar, is mad. Caesar. Yeah, like all the fans are just like he can do whatever he wants. We don't care. But, and then at the end of the shootout, you're like this. Another moment of controversy that probably added to Jose is that Montiel, the Argentinian, takes the the penalty for Sevilla to win it, misses, or rather, it's saved by Rui Patricio. And then they're like, take that again, there, will you? Oh, encroachment by Rui Patricio. Um, and if you look back at it, it probably was encroachment. It's, the it's, encroachment these days, like it, sometimes they're basically right in front of the penalty taker. That's how. Close to out yeah. again. It's, it's so blatant and obvious you have to give it. <laughs> this one wasn't blatant and obvious. But was it not? But no, okay. but if you look back on VAR when the ball is kicked. Oh, poor Jose. It's yeah. really unfortunate that they, uh, they use the rules against him, isn't it? <laughs> I wonder what prov- provokes everybody to like follow their law. Yeah. And then very letter. That was insanity. Just to piss him off. By the way, Montiel scored the winning penalty in the World Cup final shootout in December and now he scored the, scores the winning penalty once he retook it give him the Ballon d'Or now yep. Shane is what I hear you say nobody has done that ever in history no 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 uh, top level penalties but uh, it was battle of the defences for, for large swathes of the game uh, weirdly enjoyed it at par- in parts until it got to extra time and I was like no 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 this is actually well before extra time to be fair is that, uh, like the first half was fine yeah and then after that was <laughs> awful yeah, I think, and then when Sevilla equalised, they looked like the more likely team for like twenty minutes. Uh, they mm. just couldn't. They couldn't get the ball in the it's net again. Very rarely that I sit and watch a game, and I'm like, "Why am I pushing myself through this?" I was like, "I could be, do- I could be learning a new skill right now. I could be doing something actually worthwhile with my time." But <laughs> you're somehow entranced. I think whatever it is about Mourinho, you just don't know what's going to happen, and you're like, "Oh yeah, I'll sit this. I'll put myself through this just to see what he does." And I don't want that for my life anymore. I don't want. It's fine for like one match a season. And I'll do that, but if he comes anywhere back towards the football that I watch regularly, it's it's going to upset me massively. Yeah, if you could stay out of the Champions League, that'd be great. If uh, Paris Saint-Germain, please paying attention, this is not what you need for your club. Although maybe they're looking at that going, oh, imagine everybody acting in concert and caring about it enough. Everybody seems to care about the result here. Yeah. We could do with a little bit of that. But if people have seen the, uh, the the clip that's gone recently viral after the match of, of Mourinho confronting Anthony Taylor as he presumably heads towards his, his shuttle bus or taxi or It's in a random car park. Like Yeah, underneath the stadium and, and like he uh, so he calls him an effing disgrace, bullshit decisions. He in the press conference accused him of seeming Spanish um, for his decisions. It reminded me of the attack on Khabib. Uh, yeah, all it, all it was missing was the throwing of the thing. Yeah, 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 hundred percent. Completely at it. Like, either it's it's totally calculated for some reason, 
like he wants to go down as an absolute legend in the eyes of the Roma fans and he thinks this is the way to do it or he's completely lost control either way you expect this is like a significant ban from the touchline you'd imagine European football which you hope again has an impact on whether or not any of the super clubs are interested in taking him back but like it's all about him today and Sevilla have just won you know as you were pointing out the third manager of the season it's incredible Oh, the turnaround since March has been insane. Like, they were just outside the La Liga relegation zone. I think they're up to seventh now. Um, they've only lost two games in 11, and now they've just won a European title. Like, that's some turnaround. They're unbelievable in Europe. Like, because you look at the start of their season and they were absolutely putrid. Relegation was actually a possibility for Sevilla at one point. And uh, the fact that they've managed to go on and they beat Manchester United, then they beat Juventus, and now they've beaten Roma. Like, they, they've won the Europa League the hard way. That's not an easy an easy run to the title either. But yeah, Jose takes the headlines and it felt like that scene afterwards it felt like it felt like, like Vince McMahon was going to walk out. It felt like WWE, mm. a stage almost staged wrestling kind of um attack on Anthony Taylor. You don't you don't ever see Anthony Taylor in the clip, but you know he's he's there somewhere in the background and maybe the officials are walking out. But even before like the result last night, like John Bruin's going to be on the show a little bit later on to talk about the game and also Mourinho. And even before that, like I was chatting to him and I think it was, they think the game was draw at that stage. And he was like, it's, it's going to be a Mourinho theme. He was like, no matter what happens in this game, all anyone is going to be talking about tomorrow morning is Mourinho. And it's right. Like you look at all the papers, all the headlines, it's Mourinho. And there's like maybe a paragraph or a couple of lines dedicated to Sevilla and the incredible feat that they've achieved. Mm. And the rest is just like the cult of Mourinho and what he has done. I, I weirdly found myself like Stockholm syndrome or something. I found myself at the start of the match rooting for him. I, I was rooting for him. I was like, I, I want this because but then had, you remembered what he did to you. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. But he hadn't even conceded a goal in one, any of his European finals since Henrik Larsson in in '03. Like ever, so like that own goal for the Sevilla goal. You're like, oh, this is this is history. It does, it does, it does remind us all. What was Daniel Levy doing? Not, not. I mean, did he feel like was there a bonus associated with winning the trophy? Was there like a, a clause that kicked in the contract that there was an extra year, and so the compensation would have been more? Well, I don't understand. Like mm. the, the the decision to turn down the opportunity to win the trophy with Mourinho. Granted, they might still have lost with him, but yeah. they had a much better chance than they did without him. Um, we should move on because the other big manager story is that Ange and Spurs now uh, before the Celtic fans get too worried Spurs have literally been linked with every available top quality manager in world football over the last four months and not a single one of them has bitten beyond uh, having conversations and thinking well, this doesn't really sound like a good deal it feels like there are a lot of strings attached and the baggage seems to be weighing everybody in the room down literally and metaphorically and so, yet, there's enough here where it feels like there's no smoke without fire, that Ange's, Ange's camp seemed to be allowing this to happen, that the interest is bubbling up. Perhaps Ange is using this as a, a means to provoke the Celtic owner to back the club with more money and more ambition. I mean, they do have one of the best, uh, I don't know, he seems like a very, very, very good manager. And to lose him now would seem like carelessness. I know, sorry, go on, Kathleen. I was going to say, as much as like Spurs have been linked with every manager, Ange has also been linked with every single job that's come up. And most of them, it's kind of just because he, of the success he's had with Celtic, whereas this feels like the first time there's actually like proper reports that 
he's in talks with Spurs, which makes me think that there's a bit more to it than possibly other. Mm. Like, which they, they were linked with Roberto De Zerbi, they were linked with Marco Silva, they were linked with Arne Slot, who, of course, last week said he's staying with Feyenoord. Well, so Luis Enrique. If you follow, if you follow the, the train through, though, they were linked with Nagelsmann, and they, they mm. continued to be linked with him until it emerged that he didn't want to go or that talks had broken down. With Slot, he was linked for ages, and there was no denial for ages until he said he was staying where he was. Apparently, the money was incorrect, or some, something. Uh, the the transfer fee that Feyenoord wanted was shocked Spurs. With this, there's been a slight bubble up, but there's no there's been no report yet from Celtic saying that's not going to happen. It, uh, Celtic are bracing themselves for an official approach to come after the cup final. Like, the approach would only come if Spurs feel like if they've been given comfort somewhere along the way uh, by an advisor or something, that, yeah, yeah, if you do that now, I think that might make sense. Yeah, the reports in the papers today seem to be that they're not going to approach him until after Celtic play Inverness Cali Thistle in that cup final on Saturday, but, I mean, you'd imagine they'll have... That's not... I don't... No. Know. They'll have opened negotiations before then. It's lying season. Yeah, of course. Of course, so. everyone's lying. But uh, if you're Ange, I really, really hope he doesn't do this. Don't do this, Ange, if you're watching. I mean, that, you said it this morning, Kathleen, it, it, it has the stench of Potter to Chelsea of it, mm. where eventually, a, a few months in, he's going to regret and go, oh, I had a good thing. I had such a good thing at Celtic. Could have waited another six months, maybe a year, won another treble up in Scotland, and then moved on. Like, his, 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 his star is not going to go down in Scotland, let's be honest. Like, it's, it's going to stay either where it is or go higher. So I think everyone expects him to move on at some stage and get, you know, a decent job. But I just don't know what going to Spurs with this current team, what he's going to be able to do. And like, to be fair, maybe he'll go in and he'll be the first person to actually talk Daniel Levy around and build the team that he wants in the same way he's done with Celtic and we could all be eating our words in a year's time. But it just, it's the sort of club where you don't have control in the same way that if you go to Chelsea, you don't have control because of the looming large of a character like Daniel Levy. And whoever does go in there either needs to be very, very certain in themselves and able to stand up for themselves. And I kind of feel like maybe you need a bit more of a... Portfolio is wrong because like obviously Ange has achieved quite a bit so far, but I just feel like you need a bit more European success and a bit more of that sort of backing to be able to go into Spurs and actually achieve what you want to achieve. I do think the Spurs job is a good job, personally. I think that um, because of the, the stadium and the match day income, which we keep hearing about, um, the playing squad, you know the way the playing squad at Man United was so, oh, this is horrific, we, no one could ever make this work, and then all of a sudden a grown-up comes in the room <laughs> and things improve immediately. So some of those players who are playing badly this year for Spurs under Ange could actually play well. His style of football is going to get the Spurs fans on on board straight away. Like, do you, if you're if you're Ange and you know that there's the strong likelihood that Harry Kane's going to leave, do you convince him to stay for one season and score another thirty goals? And then you've got Kane and Son playing Ange ball. I don't know. I think I think like, um, how many opportunities is Ange going to get? Like, what what other? top six, top eight clubs in England are there. There's the City job, right? Which, you know, he has been part of the Manchester City, um, uh, what do you call it? What are, what are all the millions of clubs that they own? Um, so they do know him and they are aware of 
Ange's uh, characteristics as a manager and so it wouldn't be it's not beyond the bounds possibility that he gets talked about as a potential city um, city boss it's unlikely though it feels like a, it's unlikely that they would take somebody from Celtic to take over from Guardiola I don't know well, but after that the Liverpool job is he maybe he's a candidate for the Liverpool job Liverpool fits Liverpool fits his mould better like so Ange's positives he, he unbelievable in transfers knowledge of the Japanese market clearly with the players he's brought into Celtic his man management, apparently he fist bumps all the colleagues, one of these usual stories every morning coming into the training ground. Everybody likes him. Um, tactical tactical nous as well. But then you look at his European record. It's, it's very poor. Um, the the quality of football in Scottish in Scotland, let's be honest, doesn't lead us much in terms of... Uh, it doesn't tell us where he's at as a manager. Um, and there are other negatives. No sign of guaranteed success in like, the Premier League. There's not, and there's also he he specifically asked not to have a director of football at Celtic because he doesn't like working under someone. Daniel Levy, I mean, the shadow of Daniel Levy over him is not something Ange wants. I I, I, I don't see any truth to that. Could be a red face now next week when he signs the contract in Tottenham. But so, but if you're if you're in Camp Ange, right? Uh, what job are you waiting for? What what mythical job in the future are you waiting for? Well, the Man United job's not coming available. No. The Liverpool job is unlikely to come available. For, it might do, you know. Klopp might burn out, and maybe at the end of next season, Pep might win the Champions League and decides there's no more Everest for me to climb. And I'm thinking, Rich, and you know, uh, there's the potential for us to be a Championship club for a season. Uh, unlikely, but it's a possibility. So those three unlikely. Uh, after that, who are you looking at? The Chelsea job. Just signed Pochettino to a three-year deal. More than likely, he sees out two of those years. More than likely. Um, after that, Arsenal, not going to happen. So where the Spurs job might be the best available job in England over the next three seasons. Yeah. I, I, like, the advice, I, you just wait, don't you? Like, if you're For Ange, what, though? For a better job than this. What, what's the better job? Well, sh- well maybe say the Liverpool Give me the job, job comes up. Man, I've just listed, I've listed every club in the world hey, football say, there, Shane. Say six to 12 months, Liverpool job comes up. Uh, Ange does not develop young players, by the way. Like he, Celtic have an unbelievable academy, and he do they have an unbelievable academy? Well, they have a lot of players who are very hyped. Yeah, well, they have a strong academy, I would say. Do but, they have a strong but, academy? Well, we don't know because Ange doesn't bring them in. Well, that's that. Well, then they're not good enough. But the, the, I remember Tom English was on with us a number of months ago, and he said there is a decent crop of young Celtic players that just can't get a chance under Ange. There's a bit of a Mourinho about him in terms of he's not he uses the players that are there. He buys players in from Japan and elsewhere. Uh, I don't know if it fits at Spurs. Like it just to me looks like something that's going to go badly wrong within the first six months, and and I think Ange is a brilliant manager. I just think the Spurs job, I know you say it's a good, it's a good job. Of course it is. It'll be good money. It's a brilliant stadium, and all the rest. And you've they've a decent got, team. They've got like one of the best players in world football and Harry Kane on their team. But he might be gone this summer. He might be gone, but maybe Ange comes down and goes, "You're the man, and we're going to break all the records, and we're going to we're going to win a Champions League here." He's heard it all before, Kane, hasn't he? Yeah, but not Promises. from somebody credible. Like, I don't know what the conversation was like with Antonio Conte. I probably thought Conte was credible when he was coming in, but like, if you're Harry Kane this summer, and again, Kane dominates the back pages morning after morning this summer, but he's, he has to leave to, to win a trophy. Um, uh, I don't know what. Being Ange successful in Scotland, says Shane, doesn't guarantee success in the Premier League, as we've previously seen. Won't last one season if he moves to Spurs. Uh, why wouldn't he go to Spurs? Ambition has never been as low, so less pressure, says John Claffey. Spurs is a basket case, but it's not Chelsea, says Seabrack, and I think he's capable of doing a job there. Big question for me is the squad. Again, here's the thing. If you're Ange and you know the squad, you're like, well, that guy clearly underperforming by about 40%. I'll get that 40% out of him. And suddenly we have players who are more than capable of holding their own in the top six in the Premier League. And then all of a sudden it's a good season. Yeah, that point that point that John Claffey makes, uh, ambition never been as low at Spurs, so there's less pressure. That Maybe that's an argument for the Spurs position. 
like literally couldn't be worse at the moment. Like they're not in European football for next season. Uh, he does a bad record in Europe anyway, so maybe get them to Europe and then a year later develop them. I don't know. If Andrew does go to Spurs, Jared, like what do you think he'll be given the time to develop the team in the way that he likes to, and there'll be the patience there? Well, to let him have the time and space. Yeah, I think there will. Be, I think there's there's going to be an acceptance the next time that the manager has to not be a Jose style or a Conte style, and that they're going back to the Pochettino point where they gave him a period of time. Now, if memory serves, he was good out the gate at Spurs. Um, I do think that he has a style of play that will immediately get the Spurs fans on board in a way that some of the managers recently haven't. Uh, check out, um, check out the, the goalkeeper from Wolves who was like, uh, what, are, what are we doing here? Why are we signing this guy? Um, so I, like, I genuinely do think that there's a good chance that he's successful early. There's no European football for him to worry about. So he plays his best team week in, week out, which means a small squad is not that bad uh, a problem for him. The not developing young players, like I think everybody thinks that, as Wenger said, they've got the prettiest wife. Everybody thinks the kids coming through next are they're the generation that are going to save us and change football. But like, who is brilliant at bringing through young players? Like, give me the world manager who manages a, a super club at the moment who's like got a long track record of bringing players into the team who then go on and have 5, 10, 15 year careers. And like, if we're looking at Man City, they've bought all the best young talent in the world and spent the most money on their academy in the world. And so therefore they have Phil Foden. But like, who else has come through into that team? Yeah, well, like Arteta's done it. Arteta's brought through young players. Uh, Alex Ferguson did it. Like, it, it can Arteta work. probably needs more time, though. To Alex Ferguson is a little bit of an outlier there, Shane. Yeah, but... but a little it, bit of an outlier. I'm not saying that, that Ange needs to, at Celtic, bring through 10 academy players into the first team every season. But, but blood a few of them in. They're just, just oh, what if they're shite? Well, then, then you have Whose to Whose fault is that? Well, Celtic's fault, obviously. Exactly. Like, I don't know. So, in one case, you're saying he's too good for, for Spurs, and then on the other, you're saying, oh, but look at all these, these ugly parts to his, his he, ability. Yeah, but he's, t- he's too... As in, the Spurs job and everything off the pitch, like the, 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 the crap that comes with working with Daniel Levy, it, it appears, is not worth it. Surely. Uh, I also think this summer, going to Spurs, when Harry Kane appears to be at the door... Now, the, the argument for it, and I'm not trying to talk myself into it, but the argument for Ange to Spurs is that he's a great man manager. Look, look at the state of those Spurs players. Some of them need look like they just need a hug, and, and Ange would give them a hug. And he'll yeah. give them a fist bump, and they'll all be happy uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> win the Premier League. <laughs> Rory Dunhill, what's going on? Celtic manager for Liverpool FC, seriously. Uh, we'll see, Rory. We'll see what, what the, the shortlist for... Uh, Brendan, Ro- Brendan Rodgers, anyone? Selling manager for Liverpool FC. The next manager at um, Liverpool is going to be interesting. Conor Joyce says, clearly he'll take the Spurs job if it's offered to him because he has a brain unlike some other people. I don't know who you're talking about here, Conor. (laughs) Shots fired. 0879 is our WhatsApp number. If you want to get in touch with us, you can also get us uh, at Off The Ball AM, OTBAM, live with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Edition is available now. Uh, Was there anything else that you guys want to talk about here at the top just to fill in what's going on? Uh, well, a lot of good GA action at the weekend. There's, there's two, like, have you seen the fixtures? Like, it's just how are you supposed to keep up? Like, I feel like Shane. Every so often, me and you just have a conversation in the office, and we're like, "Jesus, the fixtures are great." Jesus, this weekend. Weekend, this weekend. <laughs> so right, so tomorrow, no, tomorrow's not Saturday. Saturday, you've got the the groups round two: Cork, Kerry, 
at 3 o'clock Westmeath Galway at 5 Kildare Dublin at 5 Tyrone Armagh at 7 not to mention the four games in the Tottenham Cup that day um, and then on Sunday four more games in the All-Ireland groups you've got Mayo Louth at 2 Monaghan Clare at 2 I'll be at that game myself in Clonus Roscommon Sligo at 3 and Donegal Derry at 4 and then four more Tottenham Cup games I mean that's not to mention the All-Ireland Under-20 hurling final on Sunday as well between Cork and Offaly the Miners as well a couple of other hurling finals on Saturday there's a lot there's a lot going on but I'll tell you what I do love the the nature of some of these fixtures like I'm going to Mon and Clare on Sunday and it's like they've never met before in the championship this is novelty stuff which you probably wouldn't get if there was less games like when when are Mon and Clare ever going to play each other in a championship only under a, a, a structure like this but um, that's not to say the structure's perfect by any stretch uh, namely because you can what draw your first game lose the following two and yeah, still then, make the then, preliminary group but then you're going to get hammered it doesn't really matter like it, the point of that is that um, you have something to fight for in your last game which adds significant jeopardy to that game and we, we all know you're going to get hammered like it's not like you're going to go and win the All-Ireland having so I don't know every, like oh look at this thing that I found that oh it's in a terrible a bad team can make it through those bad teams used to end up in All-Ireland quarterfinals actual quarterfinals getting hockeyed by a good team at least now they've had the chance to build for next season and you know I'm sorry, this is, I'm not arguing you, you here. No. There was a piece yesterday in the paper and I was like, oh my God, yeah, grand. Like, anyway. But has, so say everyone was like, oh, Westmead don't have a hope in the, in the group phase this year. I didn't think they did because their, their form is terrible. But then look at them against Armagh, in, sorry, in Armagh as well. Excellent. And like, I really hope they put a performance together against Galway and they're still somehow alive going into the, the last one of that. And like, I don't know, if Tyrone implode at the weekend, would you, it's not beyond the bounds possibility, is it? No, so that's a neutral venue too. Doesn't it's going to be very interesting to see that's, this. No, that's a gnome of that one thrown. Oh, is it? Okay. Uh, no, no. Uh, Westmeath Tyrone yeah. is going to be neutral. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Brian Hurley from Cork. We wanted to play Kerry all year. Big game hunters. This is um, everybody's talking Cork up this week, right? If only there was a way that Cork could already have qualified to play Kerry this season. How could they have managed to do that? Mm. What would they have needed to do to get to that stage? Does this oh, oh, they could have, but they weren't good enough. Does this not happen every time Cork play Kerry? Yes! Does, like everyone, yes. everyone tries to make the argument for Cork? Yes, and until Cork actually beat Kerry, I mean, obviously they did in COVID, but in a non-COVID year, right? Mm. Come on. Yeah. Everybody just needs to wind their neck in, I believe. Is no, it, is, it is Pocky Queef, so you never know. But Sorry, we have one last thing that we need to talk about as well. I wish Nathan was here because Nathan was in two weeks ago, ten days ago, uh, maybe it was just last Wednesday, talking about how... Um, Roy McIlroy decided he was going to shut up and not answer questions anymore. And I opened the papers today and it's uh, Roy McIlroy like, oh yeah, Brooks Kapke should definitely play for the American Ryder Cup team. He's like uh, number two in the list and he's only played two tournaments. How could you play without him? But what about the Europeans? Oh no, that's a totally different scenario. They should not play. And then they're asking him about his own game. He's like, oh, I've never felt as shaky over, uh, over the ball as, as I did for those four days ever. Uh, when he's talking about his driver. I'm like... Yeah. This is a good copy, Rory. For a man who doesn't want to say anything, he's he's given the given the headline writers plenty of ammunition. Yeah, uh, like it was never going to happen, though, was it? He was never going to shut up and not say anything. I can't remember a time where I felt so uncomfortable over the ball for four days. Yeah, all right, okay. I mean, that's pretty honest. That's, it that, is, that's but if you're if you're Patrick Reed going toe to toe with him down the back nine at the open, do you just lean in and go, "You feeling comfortable over the ball there, Rory? Are you? Are you back?" That's what I would do. Why, why, though, does he... So his, his quotes on Brooks 
I don't know if there's anyone else in the live roster that would make the team on merit and how they're playing but Brooks is definitely a guy I think deserves to be on the US team why is, why is it different than for the Europeans he just doesn't want to play with the, the Liver Rebels, I suppose. Because uh, the, they're, they're technically banned and mm. the Americans aren't. I don't know. It's, it's a legal thing that they went to court for. Yeah. It'll be interesting. But I, like that, that's, that idea that Rory McIlroy was going to shut up and for six months, 12 months, we would hear nothing from him except for the very basics on his round, uh, not, not going to happen. This is the least surprising headline, I think, right. it's been all week. OTB AM The Sports Breakfast Show from Off The Ball Right, Trey, welcome back. Uh, Vinnie Perth is with us. Vinnie, good morning to you. Good morning. How are we doing? Uh, Philly, get outside. Um, uh, a font of information on football. Uh, check out Football Daily. Has made a very good point that a couple of weeks ago in studio you outlined how to beat Shamrock Rovers and they've lost twice since. It's all down to you. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> Blueprint. I'm not, I'm not sort of uh, that welcome in Tallis, so um, I didn't need Phil adding to it there either and, and letting people know. Um, Jesus, help me out. Um <laughs> Yeah, look, I think you're getting, a, or we're getting a wish. Um, to be fair, we've got a real league title race. I'd like to think even down as far as Pats in 29 points, who would be you know five off the top of the league, are thinking. And I hope people have the right mindset to say, does a league up for grabs this year potentially, and it might be the year where Rovers fall off, and uh, we've got to push on. And as a club, I hope they're thinking that way. That's the way winners should think, and I hope that's the mindset of other teams in the league but yeah it's it's I don't know whether teams are overachieving in an underachieving league I, I just don't know where we're at uh, I look at this Rovers team and I say 18 games they've played so we're halfway through the season and they've only won 9 half of them so by and large that shouldn't be good enough to win you a league and at the moment there wouldn't be obviously they're a point behind Derry but um and and I, I I never compare eras, but you go back to 2017, and Cork City after 18 games would have been were on 44 points. Right, Dundalk, ten, ten clear, ten clear. Dundalk in 2018 were on 42 points, and the bit of shit show that I managed in 2019, we were on 38. Uh, but to give context, just pick the 2019 season because I know I'm talking about on that one. We had just started a 26 game unbeaten run. And that's what champions do around this time. June, July, August is when they win the league. So the point I make is Rovers be under pressure back in them. Now, you can't compare leagues because it's debatable. But the point I make is, um, and it's why I've brought up Derry a couple of times to say, this team winning 50% of your game shouldn't win your league title. So this team have to kick on now or else... Um, be, or, or Derry have to kick on and really put them under serious pressure but there's questions to be answered you have to say that um, losing uh, or, or dropping points in 50% of your games is not good enough at the moment and you have to, you have to sort of ask questions why Do you think there's been a consistent theme in the games they've lost because early on at the start of the season it felt a little bit like they were just there was red cards and there were uh, players not fully in form and they just hadn't settled and then they settled and looked like they turned a corner and now they're having another blip which is unusual uh, I, I, th- I think it's to be fair I think it's been a mixture of a lot of things I think I I would question whether this team is clinical enough okay in terms of for the amount of possession they have and they're brilliant and people people will wax lyrical about them and it's and, and again I, I know I'm repeating myself and people have heard me say it, it is that sort of 
we call it a Man City way. It's possession, possession, possession. And uh, how many clear-cut chances are they having um, in games? And there was one stat from, from the draw of the game, which they lost, where they 20-something, 20 20-odd 20 shots. But generally, um, and we, we'll do it in the next couple of weeks if this continues, but they're generally just shots on target is down in single figures in four and five. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that's not, that's not going to win you enough games of football and it can be easy to defend against that if if it's all in front of you in front of you uh, it's and, and teams will say oh they're getting bashed uh, and, and it's about so if you're an opposition manager and you're playing Shamrock Rovers what you've got to do is you've got to get into your player's head that you might have the crowd up you might have them have possession they might bounce the ball around they'll switch play little little ones and twos but while it's in front of you and it's not going in behind you just got to stay calm and that's the problem not all players do that and they, someone will jump out and go and press a guy leave a little bit of space in behind and um, so there's a mixture of all of them things and discipline has been an issue whether you know whether referees have made the right calls or wrong calls they've had a fair few sending offs and they lost three players on the pitch in Cork the other day and you can't win games after losing three players for sending offs I saw someone say on Twitter last night Shamrock Rovers are averaging a red card every three games the last five seasons of the English Football League and Scottish Premiership only Hamilton in 19 and 20 came even close to that so like that contextualises just how poor yeah. discipline stuff is well look the, the refereeing in the league is a different issue to this one I think right because what, what you've got to look at um, and Stephen Bradley made reference to the draw of the game same referee sent off five of the players three in the court game and two against Drota. The two sending offs in Drota were justified. Right? So Lee Grace jumps in on a yellow card, makes a bad tackle. No one in isolation would say that wasn't a yellow yeah. card. But when you when you group the five in together you say this ref has given us five. So the three the other day, the appeal to Richie Tell one. So the linesman gives that decision and uh, Rovers put a camera in their goal. So that ends up on the internet and we see the incident. But I can clearly see and by the way so Richie Tell used to be called my love child around the change room so I would not say a bad word about the man he was, he's been huge for my career as well and um, and I'd like to think I helped him in a small way so I wouldn't but he's given the referee decision to make the two, two players fall to the ground Richie sort of kicks out player holds his head and people have seen this online the linesman's looking across and a decision to make. The referee didn't give the decision. So it was a red card uh, decision made. The mistake ref gave. The ball was in play. So if that is a foul, it should have been a penalty to mm. Cork. No one has really brought that up. And then the other two incidents are second yellows. Okay, And I can understand Rovers' frustration on them. But what is key to it is when Johnny Kenny, who's a young player, has come back from Celtic. And I, I think he's... Ex- exceptional forward but there's a little bit of petulance in Johnny in, in terms of when he's been taken off and different things he's on the yellow makes a silly tackle and the key to it is the key to to what happens is um, if you watch the incident Jack Bourne has a right go off him because you gave the referee decision to make mm. now the Sean Hall one same thing Sean makes a, a tackle player goes down holding his ankle to be fair to Rovers, most referees will go, I've, I've sent two off, have a word with Sean and say, one more, and maybe it is. And that's why I don't like questioning referees on second. Yeah. Because you don't see the whole sort of... I, I was in Richmond, so I wasn't at the court game. And when I watch it back... But Jack Bourne absolutely hammered Sean Hoare from giving the referee decision to make. So discipline has to improve 
from the teams in our league, but there's no doubt then referee standards have to improve. So it's 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 quite a, a mixture of, of all of them things. And what Rovers have done is they should be close to 40 points and have a comfortable... You, you were speaking earlier on about giving young players a chance. Mm. Well, I tell you what, if you're Rovers now, you're not giving young players a chance in a hurry until you get your lead back. Yeah. That's the key to it. And that's where the, the average age of the very top teams, like Celtic, like Rovers, like is generally the highest yeah. in the league because you're under pressure to win games every week. The, the the one positive, I guess, for Rovers is the home game tomorrow night against Dundalk. Probably couldn't come against better opposition. Dundalk haven't won in the last three. There's a bit of a, I don't know, I guess the fans aren't overly happy with yeah. management and owners. Yeah, this, this is a story. I think Dundalk bubbling underneath. So I was at Richmond Park the other day and Pats against um, Dundalk. And what i seen in that game was, i seen Richmond Park and... I have to say to touch on, on Richmond Park real quickly like there's a guy there Keen Menton and it's a small point but the mascots he looks after them and it's just a, a volunteer in the club but he brings them on the lap of honour before the play, yeah, as the players goes in and you get a standing ovation and I was just thinking to myself imagine being 8 or 9 yeah. and you know that that clapping fans thing is something you take for granted as a footballer but actually it's something that's kind of Special, like, and people talk about professional footballers. Did he really, you know, you know, the way they see them with the hand in the bottle, maybe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But these kids love it, and you're going, that's that's when clubs have cracked it because these are becoming, you can see these kids like they're loving it. But, um, so, but the atmosphere and everything about Pats was really good. The stadium, over four and a half thousand. It was probably the worst traveling support I've seen from Dundalk at a Pats game in over 10 years, right? The fans of are drifting away and we and I always make this reference while while everything is growing and growing got to be careful we treat our fans with respect and 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 make sure they keep turning up so um Dundalk has Stephen O'Donnell made mistakes as a manager yes uh, absolutely and he he's the type of guy who would admit that all managers make mistakes football is about fine margins he lost the game the other day 2-1 uh, Pats had a man sent off in a bizarre incident, again, going back to referees, but bizarre incident, and Dundalk are down to, or Pats are down to 10 men, Dundalk are well in the game, and get beaten again, and, and just look like they did a soft belly, and maybe tactically, Stevie would think about one or two decisions, and they went to a back three, and chased it, and conceded, but Dundalk are in a lot of trouble, at the moment, off the pitch, peak six, the owners of Dundalk, were ran out of, Irish football, and put a huge amount of money into it, and did they make mistakes? Absolutely. Uh, I was part of it. Uh, one of the reasons I went back is I felt, and they, 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 and I've always kept Dundalk stuff private. I don't believe in writing books or, or you know, because what goes on, you know, you're managing a business in a football club, and it's not for, for repeating stuff. But one of the reasons I went back at the time was I felt they'd learned a lesson. I felt they they were willing to improve things, and they got ran out of town. So, but what's happened is the hurlers on the ditch sometimes get off the ditch and start hurling, and people have found out actually running League of Ireland clubs is really difficult, and there hasn't been a single improvement in that club since Peak Six have left, and it's reflecting on the pitch, and it's 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 pretty it's pretty sad to see, um, and there, while Stevie. O'Donnell has to take some responsibility for stuff on the pitch. I actually think he's overachieving with that with that group of players he have, and I, I'm concerned for Dundalk. 
uh, things aren't going well for them, and um, it's and yet they've only lost six games. Yeah, no, I think he's overachieving. Yeah. yeah, and and again, sport is full of fine margins. So they play Shamrock Rovers on Friday up in Tala, and I think if they win that game, you know they go up to fourth potentially. European spot isn't that far away, but remember. It's only a ten-team league, mm. you know. Forty f- percent uh, of the league win a European spot, so yeah. it's not. I'm not saying it's not difficult, but it is achievable. A lot of stuff is achievable within the league. They don't feel like one of the teams who could go on a run at the moment and catapult themselves into European places, or do they? <sighs> don't know because we, we spoke about Sligo a couple of months ago, and then they went and, and just continued to lose, and then they go and beat Derry the other day. <laughs> and the, the challenge I have is, you see. You see teams now in the league. It wouldn't shock me if any team outside the top two lost four in a row. wouldn't shock me. But it also wouldn't shock me if any of them went and won four, four in a row. So it's it, 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 it's such a, a mixed match. And we don't know. That's that's the sort of debate that's starting. Is is the standard too high? You look at Sligo, I think up until last week, and I haven't seen the stats after last week, so you imagine it's still the same. They, made, they were the second most completed passes in the league but they were toured from bottom so you know is there a is, is football changing a little bit where it's pass 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 well I don't know uh, go it, back to Roscommon in Dublin is, yeah, <laughs> is, is this um, is that a, a team who is discovering itself and and like building something and then over the third ha- third quarter of the season and the final quarter of the season they begin to uh, or are they trapped and they're lacking a cutting edge and they're they're incapable of converting the possession. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, d- I don't know how to answer that because you're y- probably right in terms <clears> of they are you know, a team that w- were brought together. A lot of guys from outside of Ireland, I think they brought in 10 players and eight of them were from outside of Ireland. So, and uh, what I mean by that is sort of uh, wherever, diff- different parts of the world. So, um, not like... Uh, and this, uh, I'm trying not to make a lazy comment here, but English br- British football can be quite easy if they were coming from English football, as in League One, League Two, yeah. champ- or um, even lower than that conference, because it's quite similar. But they've a lot of guys coming from further afield. Um, so I'd like to think John Russell has a plan, and it looks like to come together. They've been exceptional at different stages. But the other fear is, and come away, my slide or second is. Are teams forgetting how to um, go and... Uh, I had a friend watching Shells and Bullshit on TV and his, his comment was, and he'd be a real football person for one better word, but when he rang me on the way home, I was coming from uh, Richmond. He was just checking in on how the games were and he's like, does no one put the ball in behind anymore? Does no one like... And and it's like pass for pass sake, and I sound like a dinosaur. Or uh, I'm only out of league a year or two, but you're like football is has to be careful; it doesn't become sterile. Interestingly, while you say, or 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 sport is discussing the the whole sort of dubs or common thing, yeah. you have to be careful that you you're easy on the eye and not creating more chances. Going back to Rovers. you know, do they do they get enough for the fullbacks in behind or the wingbacks and? For, it's a it's a debate that's starting to happen now because, as I said, possession for possession's sake, or looking pretty is one thing. Yeah, but actually having 
go and win games. But you'd hope that somebody... So I presume Stephen O'Donnell was thinking that when he went to the tree at the back. It's like, I'm going to go and try and win this game. And then it doesn't work and you get punished for it. And so you automatically then become more conservative afterwards. And yeah, that- not to second-guess O'Donnell, but the, the key to the key to when a team goes against 10 men is generally you hurt them in wide areas. Right. Okay? So have two wingers and two fullbacks and go that way. Okay. But that, that's my view. Okay. When you go the other way, it's all and central. Sorry, one last thing on the, on the point there. If, if the league is becoming this uh, passing and kind of boring, sterile, uh, then surely there's room for some team to emerge and, and be counter-cyclical. Like, you, you do the opposite of what the whole league is doing, so you're going to be effective yeah, against all everybody. And I think, I think it's, it's not becoming boring in one sense, as in you're getting lots of good results and, t- yeah. and inconsistencies, okay? But actually, when you... When you and, Watch and the full 90 minutes. When, when you completely tactically analyse it, or so th- there's a, a group going through the pro licence at the moment, so they will be doing a little bit of this, and I, I'm sure they will be, you know, looking at certain things. But I think balls do that at certain points. I think sometimes they've gone away from that and the other night they sort of balls do that a little bit of where you've got your Dylan Connolly's up front, your Alfa Labby's up front and uh, Twardick or whoever it is and a little bit of pace up front and um, in any football whether it's the highest, highest level international football what what is key is is pace that's what hurts teams and if you're not quick in modern day football then you better be bloody good you mm. better be Xavi or Iniesta yeah. nowadays or, yeah. you know, so it, it is becoming a running game. We haven't spoken about Derry. Yeah. It's just a flakiness with Derry at the moment that would frustrate you if you were a Derry fan. Or even, like, I'd love to see Rovers have to chase somebody down because I think that would be really good for everybody. I think that would inspire them to be more aggressive and we haven't really seen that. We haven't seen them need to be aggressive to win a league. Yeah. For me, for me, that's the key to the whole league. Can't Derry... Can Derry put Rovers under pressure, and and I, and I say that in the sense of of as many friends or ex players in the, the Rovers dressing room as I do in the Derry dressing room. So I'd be very close to McElhenney and Duffy and Dummigan, uh, as I would be. Dan Cleary was another one that was called one of me loved childs as a coach. <laughs> as you get like you were a busy players. man, yeah. I tell you what, uh, Tell or Gannon, Sean Hoare. So I, I don't have a particular one that I want to win the league but I want, what I do want to see is I want to see a competitive league as in someone pushing yeah. somebody and we haven't seen that and the challenges are for Derry um, they were they've been good at different stages particularly away from home but against Sligo and I think Rory has spoken himself they were just just weren't good enough and Sligo the man crazy John Mann sent a half sent off crazily but they just didn't penetrate enough and again it goes back to me, me, my last point just have to be careful you're not easy on the eye like they've got some outstanding wingers in in Graydon and uh, Michael Duffy Michael Duffy's probably he's up there as one of the best players in the league I always say wingers because they because they have to tuck themselves out in the left don't get the same plaudits at times but they've got some outstanding footballers getting Patrick Magdalene back into that midfield is huge and there's no doubt injuries have affected them but there, I suppose you used the right word there's a flakiness about them in terms of results Captain Obvious over here but obviously to, to win a league you need to create chances and score goals Ollie O'Neill doesn't strike most people as a natural striker I think they had one shot on target in that game against Sligo as well Yeah, I know Colin Whelan has been sidelined so that's an issue in, in and of itself but creating chances is the issue isn't it? 
scoring goals. Scoring goals. It's a, it's a, it's a bit of it's a bit of Duffy will score you enough goals if he remains fit. Duffy will get into the sort of ten, twelves. But there's no doubt they they have searched for that striker. Patching's form has dropped off a little bit, so he creates a huge amount of chances. Patrick McElhenney's being injured, so it looks like Jamie McGonagall is in and out of the team at the moment. Whether that's injury, we don't know, but it looks like. I mean. There is a shortage in number nines in, yeah. in football, like in um, across the world, and it's definitely the case in our league. The best striker is probably Pahoban and and at Dundalk, and then followed by Gaffney, who's had a better season than Pat last year. And then beyond that, you're looking at young Johnny Kenny, but you're probably struggling for out and out. Max Matter has had a great season for Sligo, but we've a huge shortage of goal scorers, mm. and again, I find it hard to play up front for some of these teams because it's. It's pass, 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 and um, you like it a little bit more service. And um, like, there's no, there are no Glenn Crows or Trevor Vaughan's in the league at the moment, are there? Like proper goal scorers, uh, Jason Burns. Well, I, I'd say to you, Hulban, but like outside of Hulban, he's gone. Like in the game the other day, Pat's gone in different areas looking for the ball and trying to link up, and he's not being the centre forward because his team aren't good enough at the moment so outside of Pahuban I would probably agree with you Gaffney does some things but he does them slightly different we've a, we a shortage in number nines and people want to know why I think I've said it before but we used to play four four two. so your law of averages means we're now playing with one striker and from all the way from under eights all the way up so your law of averages tells you is from eight years of age you're only working with one number nine now as opposed to two so statistically, you're not going to develop as many. Yeah, difficult to fix that. With like, you want to get more people, more time on the ball, more touches at underage level, but also you want to show them the killer instinct. So, I mean, I don't know. Maybe you can convince some of those wide players to play through the middle as they get or, from eighteen. Or maybe 19. going back to going back to your your debate around the GEA. Maybe you just let kids play. Well, what do you think of this? Because uh, play four four two. So so be it. Do something different as a coach. Don't follow Pep Guardiola. Um, the underage soccer is way more competitive at, at eights, nines, tens, elevens yeah. than GA. Is that a good or a bad thing? Do you think? Um, see, I think it's a good thing, right? But does 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 a does a, a lad on my shoulder shouting at me going? <laughs> What about the participation? What about getting just getting the kids out? So it's finding that balance. And it is. I think it's, it's so difficult because because so you're thinking from the elite professional yes. side of things, right? Yes. And that's um, but there needs to be somebody else thinking about actually we have a sport that has mass participation already, but for whatever reason we're not producing enough players. I would say to you, to be fair to the FEI, okay, don't know the whole ins and outs of it because it's not rolled out yet but they're looking at a, a sort of calendar year around football so for example summer street leagues are similar yeah well uh, uh, yes so and and give you one example and it's not going to do the FA's report but you take if we were able to switch certain sections of Irish football to even closer to summer football so take December January are really awful months in this country yeah. it used to be November it's sort of December January if that became your futsal local sort of time yeah futsal is a brilliant tool to develop players skills touch so obviously for those don't know futsal is basically a a small ball it's like size three it's smaller Mm. than your four indoor halls all little touch 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 uh, bouncing ball around and it's almost like Spanish football yeah to use a a sort of 
right? So how do you get players good at that? Give them two months of it in the middle of the rain and winter and in so many of these halls that have popped up and school halls and uh, community centres and run little leagues around it or, or whatever the case may be. So I think that would be one small fix, but it's such a big thing for them to get in. So I think the FAI would like... When I say calendar year football, so it's not about flogging the same coaches. So you're coaching a Cherry Orchard under 13s. Like, I have a friend coaching, I think it's under 14s. And he's saying to me, because he's listening to our debate, and he's saying, boy, I need a break now. He's not saying that he doesn't want to work in the summer. He's like, now I need a bit of a break for a month or two. Yeah. It's about when that month or two well, comes Well, that's around. what I was saying. If the break happened around Christmas yeah, in yeah. January and it was dark and annoying to go out at night, everybody would be like, oh, this is great. I can sit yeah. and watch telly. Whereas in the summertime, it's actually easy to get everybody to go out. And so people are going to be on holidays. But the results ultimately shouldn't matter. Like, yeah. that, that one trophy that that under-14 team won is not the crowning moment of their life. Otherwise, we end up like Friday Night Lights, where... No, so i, I give you an example of how football and now I'm going back a long time but I played for probably the greatest Cherry Orchard team of all time as in trophy wise we won everything we won the Milk Cup as well so that, that that's under 14 under 16, under 16. so okay. back then there was only one we, we beat Rangers in the final mm. okay in uh, a sold out cold rain maze and all that stuff we, we 10 Irish internationals in the first under 15 squad and all that stuff just but outside of Barry Prandeville, myself and Eamon McLaughlin, and I was genuinely, and I'm not saying this for uh, an X-Factor crying, I was one of the worst of our, our squad. I never made international under 15, 16. With guys gone all over England, for, but only three of us became in any way, shape or form. So all the trophies we won, all the league titles we won, the domination. Like we won the league one year, I think it was under 15, by dropping a point. A point. Right. And we only won it by two because Belvedere dropped three points. Right. They lost it once to us and drew so it in us. In theory, the standard is really high. But actually, it's not really high. It's just that there's super focus on competition and winning as opposed to developing the players. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's a mixture of all. And it was a different time, right? So development was different yeah. in terms of uh, the league one pathway or whatever. Okay. But the point I'm making is, it's not about winning the trophies, but you have to, you also have to teach that as well. Like, it's a bit like, there's a, there's a job in football called the front post hole. Okay, most people know what that is. But if you don't ke- teach kids that, and if you don't teach a fella how to do that role, and he goes on trial, say, for example, to England, and the man says, I want you to do the front post hole, and he's standing there, front post hole. So mm. you have to educate young kids that's about... skill acquisition. Yeah. But I don't think that's about winning and losing. So you can teach everybody the front post hole at under six, under seven, okay, under nine, but, I think. But that, that's just one small example of, you've got to teach a kid how to be clinical. You've got to teach them how, when we're tuning up, we go 4 nil up, yeah. and then the game's over. Yeah. So when do you do that? Do you well, take off your best players and give other players a chance? But, and that's the debate. I'm not... I'm not saying that's what I would do in the go games they, they play matches yeah. so, so they play matches and the kids are keeping score and they're also up against their yeah. their nearest rival who they're marking mm-hmm. and they're very intently marketing, marketing them it's just that there's no league and so more players will reach under 12 ideally with yeah. more skills acquired and then then I, I still think it's still a bit early to be well, like, I, tr- I throw this one at you then and the joy of the game is dead now you must go and kill your opponent we, we, we need a debate with probably the head of um, performance in, in Irish rugby Darius Sheridan I, I may not have given him the right title but he worked in New Zealand for a long time and obviously in, in sport 
but there there is you, how many kids do you think would turn up so you turn up and you get a band so if there's enough for four teams you get four different colour bands okay and you play you just turn up no teams no no structure and it'd be, un, it'd be say under 10s 11s so I'm either red blue green orange and you just you go you're assigned to a pitch and you go play the reds play blues and you play four matches and just I would I would think parents would turn up and sign up to that with the kids because it's about playing oh, it's totally. about getting involved and even some really so good you, kids are you would saying that's up. what rugby do at the moment no so that was a, a pilot they run in, in New Zealand okay, okay? and uh, Dara has done a, a thesis on that around uh, education it would be interesting to get his views on it but when I heard that and um, unfortunately Dara's brain works completely different level than mine right so I, I, I have to sit with him and discuss it but actually just the bare bones of that idea is brilliant for a local community where the other thing about, like, I, I live in City West now, right? So it's, and not to go on a, a rant here, but there's been a big community built in City West, apartment blocks everywhere. I moved up 15 years ago, fields everywhere. If I wanted to set up a team called City West FC or City West GEA, I cannot do it. You know why? No, no fields. It's gone. Now we've to fix housing mm. crisis. There's no fields. So there's no communities being built. And to go back to this band thing is, so imagine my son is playing on the pitch. And let's let's say I'm just a normal Joe from Tallet, right? Go back to what I am, right? My son's playing on the pitch with a yellow band. And the local doctor's son is playing on the pitch with the yellow band. All of a sudden I've built a relationship with the local doctor. And that's how the GAA works. That's how... But... We've got to get back to that, and it's such a good opportunity. Eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, and and go to go games with all sports. And people love football. Like yeah. it's just I I did there. I was talking about this a couple of times this week. I did see a kid being shouted at, and maybe it was just because the dubs swear more. But telling the the kid to there you go. Can kick well, it in, they're allowed to. Well, Shane, though, yeah. Shane, give me what you use. Use. I'm go, I don't know what their culture is. Is that a, a not a nice he, term he anymore? Thinks, he thinks he's not. Well, I'm a tiny from the country. Yeah, yeah but yeah. Still a you still have your own lingo. Ta- oh, we do. Yeah, yeah. Tell yeah. me to feck off in culture language. There is a word you I would just have. say feck off. I. Eh? Nah, you don't say. <laughs> yeah, you see, you're, you're using the feck. There's a subtle difference. Yeah, this yeah, kid yeah, is not yeah. told to feck. Well, I'm being politically correct. Yeah, all right. Okay. Probably can't say what I would say with my mates. Yeah. Come here. We're almost completely out time but uh, you correctly said uh, in the ad break that Anne should take the se- the, the Spurs yes, job absolutely and by the way um, I, I won't go into it but maybe some other time we discuss it the way he plays football if Kane stays would absolutely suit Spurs if he if, if he stays if though. he stays of course he plays with a front three tactically he's brilliant mm. okay but I'm sorry I'm going to upset a lot of people and but He's, he could get bored with Scottish football quite quickly. Fair enough. And I think tactically, the way he plays, he plays with a front three. Um, his number eight joins in, number 10, and his wingers make inverted runs all the time with the ball, and one of his midfielders come out. And he, he's brilliant at the way he does it. I actually think tactically, he suits Spurs, and the likes of John Duggan would be happy because it's entertaining. It's a, so you think Richarlison, uh, Son, and Harry Kane, he actually would play the three of them mm. as three forwards, or two wide areas and come up with all different solutions he is uh, an outstanding coach and I actually hope he gets the sports job because I think he he I, I like clubs to, to kick on I think he'd be a top four he deserves the money at Spurs he deserves a top job and there's no doubt Spurs is a top job I'm just concerned for him that mess that is Levy and everything off the pitch 
He doesn't like a man over his shoulder. I don't. I don't know. Is that overplayed? I don't know. Is it overplayed? And much? Yes, Daniel Levy hasn't done his business right for a year or two. But I tell you what, the one hell of a successful business that I'm sure they will have money to spend. Um, no debt, no significant debt that prevents no. them from uh, obviously this revenue stream debt, is there yeah. with that ground. I, I see it happening. So we'll we'll have to go. The dub will take his stance in it, and you mm. being a logger will logger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. That's that the word you're looking for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, have, we, we got there eventually. Jackie's over here. Look at this. Really good stuff. Thanks, Thanks very, very much. much. I'm, not, I'm not a Jackie. I'm, no, I'm, no, no. Uh, I was the last ten. So county tail, Dublin so, man now. Yeah, no. there's County Dublin now. Hey, <laughs> careful. We'll, we'll see you on Saturday. <laughs> Uh, it is 8.33 OTBAM live with Gillette Labs get the ultimate shave or your money back Neon Night Edition is available now Jenny Claffey is up next talking French Open first here's Joe and Dan chatting on last night's show about Nathan Collins now if we were talking in January Nathan Collins may well have been number one um, but Julien Lopetegui came in yeah. he said Craig Dawson you're my guy and so in effect up until maybe the last um, week or two of the season Collins has pretty much met an abrupt end yeah, he played the last two games. Team. He did play the last two games, which is which is, and there is an encouraging end to that. Okay, yeah. Do you, so I suspect he'll stay for sure for another season. Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, like the one thing that you're guaranteed in the Premier League is you'll be sacked soon, manager. I just have to stick this out for a year or two, and then maybe my face fits again. If oh, I wouldn't be worried about Collins at all. I actually wouldn't have. I don't know. Under uh, No, I wouldn't be worried. Break back in. I think. I think Lobotegi came in with a firefighting mission okay. to stay up. Um, I think there would be a view that Collins, like he's a record signing, he's the long-term guy. Yeah. Um, some speculation even around Kilman, who's the left-sided defender, might he go? I don't even know if that's going to happen or not. Um, but he's an investment by the club. I just think Collins. Like he played a lot of football, he just had these uh, concentration issues in games, or like there's a mistake lurking. Yeah, but on paper, like he's one of these where, like he's like he's been a, not a high player, but the football people from the age of like seventeen, eighteen, like this guy's a player. They can all see it. I think people who train with him all see it. It's just about ironing that out. Yeah. But I suspect a full preseason at Wolves. I I'm actually not concerned about him at all. Right. I hope that uh, Dan is correct there. It, uh, there's good chances a new manager at Wolves so we'll see if the new manager fancies uh, Nathan Collins a bit more than Lopetegui does or if maybe he can find Lopetegui's good graces but anyway let's move on French Open time Jenny Claffey is with us Jenny how are you? Very well good to be back here guys um, You're not going to the French Open you, we're delighted to have you here but we're disappointed for you that you're not yeah, it's uh, in shame. Paris It's a shame we're not doing this live from, from the French Open uh-huh. today but maybe next year um, have you, have you, Do you go to many of the tournaments? Like is that is it is it okay, are you okay going to tournaments now? <laughs> yeah, interesting you put it that way because when I was playing, like at the time when I was playing, um, I used to to go to them more often, and then I had this love hate relationship with tennis once I retired and didn't want to have anything to do with Wimbledon or any of the tournaments whatsoever. So this was going to be my first time yeah, back, my maiden trip back. All oh, right, okay. Unfortunately, injury got in the way. Man, because there's a isn't there a clip of Gary Neville? Someone said Gary Neville once was at a, at a charity match or something. And he was like he. he just hated the idea of kicking the football. Just even when he retired, Stephen Hendry was the same in snooker for a while. Didn't want to pick up a cue. Like is it, is it the same in, in those intervening years immediately after you retire that you're like, ah, don't put me near a racket. Definitely for me it was um, because it was it was a forced retirement. You know, with with an injury that I sustained that I it came out of nowhere. That I didn't didn't see that coming, mm. and you know, I was having such good success. And and then yeah, I wanted to have nothing to do with tennis for a good. I'd say. Th- 
two to three years after, didn't want to have anything to do with it, didn't want to go into coaching. Right. Um, subsequently, now I'm, I have a tennis coaching business, but at that time I looked into moving careers. I didn't want to have anything to do with tennis, and then kind of my love has come back for the game in the last years. What was the injury? An elbow. I end up with um, no cartilage in the joint surface in my elbow, so I, even now I can't straighten my arm fully because it's bone on bone. So right. It's quite painful still, and I can't play tennis now. And you can't fix that. That's not like a, you know grow it in a lab and inject it in it's just one of those things you don't have it anymore they're not making any more of it no so they tried they, I've had two surgeries on it and the second one they, they drilled into the they call it a microfracture thing into the back of the elbow to try and release yeah. some cartilage but it didn't it's loads of tiny little holes that they yeah. drill and then it's supposed to seep out and yeah. heal yeah. it didn't happen unfortunately but I'm waiting for some great new medicine to right. yeah, break and through. so you can't actually just play for fun no, so after I retired, I, I learned to play tennis left-handed. Oh, right. And coached left-handed for good Holy years. shit, wow. <laughs> That's impressive. Um, well, I had to because I couldn't Oh, look at me, I'm not that good at sport, I'm just really good at everything. <laughs> yeah. Wow, <laughs> sickening. Yeah. yeah, so uh, the odd time now, I, I put it back in my right hand, but yeah, I can play left-handed, it's pretty cool. And is your injury a football injury? The one I have now? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, so, yeah, very annoying. Just go to one another sport, and then I think I'm just made of glass, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> body breaks down at every chance does the does the left arm feel like the right arm felt if that makes sense not at all no no but it was it was a mad transition because it was like completely t- like you know trying to learn oh, the so game yeah. with the other hand my train your brain and everything and the movement's so different um, but then I, st- I started playing a lot and then was considering competing with it just I mean not like in for leagues and yeah, yeah. local mm. just for fun to get back into it uh, but then I decided why would I go from being the best with my right hand to then not being the best of my life. Oh, that's, you know? that's a very interesting little debate in your head. And um, so, <laughs> is that not just, would you not just love the competition? I found it playing football or paddle tennis okay. or other sports, okay. no, not, not in tennis. Yeah. Ego, you see, comes into it as well. Gonna, like, that was it, my pride. <laughs> <laughs> totally. But would that not be amazing too if you could win in your left hand? Like, Look, I could even win left handed. Yeah. It's a bit, a bit Ronnie O'Sullivan. A bit Ronnie O'Sullivan, yeah, yeah. But could you imagine if I lost to someone and they say they beat Jenny Claffey, they're not going to be saying they beat her with her left hand. So <laughs> <laughs> I could never live that time. Wow. Okay, this is what separates the sports people from us. I just would like, just, okay, fair enough. <laughs> Let's talk about the French Open. Um, so, uh, Danny Medvedev, straight out. Um, that was a shock, right? Yeah, I think it was a bit of a shock. Although, at the same time, you know, up until he won Rome Masters there a week ago, he was going on about, and everyone knew about how much he hated the clay court surface. Uh, but he had great form, as we said, in Rome. He won the title, and then he was talking about how he felt more confident on the surface, and then an absolute flop in the mm. first round. He was the number two seed. I think people had kind of um, backed him to do better this year um, but unfortunately he was beaten by a, a, a qualifier guy who's like ranked outside the top 150 or something How important is form uh, coming into a major like is it generally speaking someone who has been shooting the lights out coming into a major that wins it or can can you have that almost someone who just springs from the blue and, and has a run well, there seems to be. It's hard to predict that, I yeah. guess, because we've seen it over the years. Like, okay, maybe not so much in in the French Open with like Nadal being so dominant, but you've seen on the women's side like players coming with no having won no tournaments on the lead up and then coming in and, and winning it. Um, like you know, Shvantec a few years ago, her first title. We had heard about her, but she wasn't dominating as much as she was say last year on, in her in the clay court season, and she and she'd won it. So, I mean, yes, it, you think form is going to mm. be an indicator anyway, and can be an indicator. But then if we look at Djokovic coming into the French Open this year he's had no form it's the first time he hasn't won a tournament coming into Roland Garros um, in the run up on the clay court season in, in over five years or something but we still can't count him out he's staying under the radar as well Djokovic is yeah. usual yeah yeah 
I'm not um, looking forward to, no. to seeing what happens. I saw a bit of Djokovic yesterday, um, particularly early on. So in the first set, he really struggled. Then really clear in the second set. But in the first set, he was screaming at the box, like screaming at them and swearing and not in, because I could understand it, in whatever language he speaks. Um, it seemed like he was swearing in French or Spanish or something. Um, is that, is that, does he always ball out Ivanitovic and whoever else is beside him we've definitely seen it more often lately that he's he's maybe feeling more of the pressure of you know now trying to match or win sorry the 23 grand slams but we've seen it lately with him we saw it in Australia as well he was really screaming like Orny Ivanitovic in, in that grand slam and then apparently he's got a new I'm not sure who what role this guy new coach or somebody in his box and he was directing a lot of his right, anger towards him three of them sitting beside each other and this is the first time in France that the box can coach they're like, yeah, yeah. Talk, yeah. Um, I've been reading a bit about that this week and I think last year they allowed it in America and there was some other trials and this is the first time that in this year it's going to be in uh, France and Wimbledon are, are finally caught up. Um, what difference does it make? The coaching, I mean, it's really good to have the, the positive reinforcements, you know, but before you go out on, on a match court, you kind of have your, your tactical plan and, and your game plan and what you're going to do against a certain player. But then it's good to have that on the sideline. I mean, I'm not sure how how much you can put down to winning or losing a match mm-hmm. based on the coaching, but it does ha- help, really help to have that um, positivity in your corner. Maybe if not so positively <laughs> shouting at them, but it is somebody to, to vent at. And also players need that too, you know, in the in the heat of battle. But you're saying there in, in the first set, it was like an hour and a half, the first set, it was 7-6, yeah. it was so close. And then he absolutely demolished him in the set, next two sets. Fushevich, my kids were loving the pronunciation, the incorrect pronunciation. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> um, we had to we had to YouTube it just to make sure that we were saying it properly, right. so that, that would shut them up. But um, <laughs> I mean, in case they go in school, to say you know, I was like, what, what were you watching last night? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but he had like um, seven or eight break points in the first set and only won one, whereas um, Djokovic had won the break point that he had. So he's still a cold hard killer. Like you give him an opportunity, he's going to take it. Totally. We know that about Djokovic. He is just that steely, determined, incredible athlete with this amazing drive to, to win and mm-hmm. just doesn't let players in. Like, you know, after a set like that, yes, they first set 7-6, you'd think the match would remain competitive. Yeah. But it almost seems like Fusevic just gave it his everything and then just Djokovic has those extra gears that the other players don't have and was able to, to you know, rely on that and then just run away with the match. Because we've actually seen that so often in his career where he will drop a set occasionally in Grand Slams and you think, oh, this is going to be a close match. But it never really is. It's almost like he's working himself up to a level which is consistently 85-90% and other players can get to that for a short period however long it is it can be a set it can be a set and a half sometimes it's two sets and then they're they're just spent by the effort of getting up to that is that physical or is it is it like is it the quality of the ball placement that wears you down I think it's a combination of a lot of things like for Djokovic he just has so much in his repertoire do you know that these guys can match it as you say for for two sets but especially as well in a Grand Slam when it's best of five sets that's where Djokovic seems to come alive against mm-hmm. other guys you know in best of three sets it's a different yeah. different game altogether whereas Djokovic just seems to have another level beyond these other guys and also like he's been playing the game for so many years he's been in these situations far longer than some of these guys he's playing against he's played so many five set matches as well in his time so the experience he can 
draw on that as well. But yeah, if they're able to match him for two sets, then it becomes, I guess, you know, that maybe Djokovic has figured out the way to, to play the match. And then he also has that physicality on these guys that he can outlast any opposition. He did look a bit like an octopus at various stages. There was like, I don't know if it's just the way the cameras are now placed for the Ultra <laughs> HD, but there was, there's bits where you kind of see his contortion as he's like facing one direction, leans over and then the ball has gone. I was like, I haven't actually seen or noticed how physically pliable he is compared to normal human beings. Yeah, he has spent a lot of time. Plastic, yeah. Yeah, he is. He spent a lot of time, I think, and that was a big focus maybe about, you know, eight to ten years ago on, like, the yoga and the flexibility, that side of the game, because that's that's obviously where you're going to break down as well as an athlete if you're not working on those, the the mobility, flexibility, mm. that kind of stuff. And he spent a huge amount of time focusing on it. You can see it. Like, he literally, as you said, you know, his body is back and everything's facing that way, but his legs are facing forward. Yeah. He's kind of And the ball is pinged straight into the corner. And, like... He can retrieve it always, retrieve every ball. It's yeah. just... It's funny how his attitude, that, that negative, like, shouting at Ivanisevic is the complete opposite of Carlos Alcaraz. He's getting a lot of praise for, like, really sunny happy disposition <clears throat> nearly all of the time looks like he's playing a practice match even that, that game I think Sitsipas said the same he, he, he constantly has a smile on his face Alcaraz probably inspiring other players to, <laughs> to play that way because obviously he's world number one so it works Yeah. but that game against Tara Daniel yes, like, I think he won it in four sets Alcaraz but I mean He's just, he's getting the job done, but with a smile on his face, which is brilliant. Yeah, I think it's lovely to see in, in, in the game as well, because mm. like in the past we've had obviously like Djokovic and Federer and Adel. When Federer came through, he was a brat. Well, as a kid, yeah, yeah, he was. Yeah. Always screaming at people. I think Alcaraz is just in really enjoying his tennis, mm. and I think that's something we can see. Like as you said, like with the smile on his face, like he plays these amazing shots, and then you see him smiling. Like you know, as the opposition, that's very annoying. It's as intimidating well. as well. Yeah. Like. yeah, but he has this level of confidence as well, and that's showing in his game as uh, too. But the enjoyment factor is actually making him more appealing. Mm. As you say, like it's nice to watch that as well. Somebody who doesn't look to be struggling as much as you might see with other players, but again, he is only. Just he's so young, he's so new to the game as well. Give him a few more years, and it's not fresh. Yeah, yeah, he's fresh. Yeah, to get ground down. Yeah, cynical. Yeah. Not that you want to knock that knock that that smile off his face, but you know, let that. Let's see if that will will continue. What impact does the wind have? Because even on, on the Philip Chatrier court <laughs> yesterday, that 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 was one thing that was mentioned after that match. Yeah. Like, <laughs> is the wind an actual? big factor during those games yeah it will be yeah because um, because for example like if you if he plays with so much power Alcaraz mm. uh, the wind is not is going to take a, away a bit of that power like if you say for example hitting into the wind so you're not knocking the opponent off the court as easily as you would the mm. points are going on a bit longer I mean for Alcaraz he did say yeah, he said it, the windy was the windy was uh, affecting yeah, yeah, him yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's why he lost that set but you know he did never really looked in too much danger I thought but the wind will impact yeah of course the conditions are going to impact the players because it takes a bit of a bite out of the ball um, when it's windy if, or, and if you've got the wind behind you though then that's a different you know you've mm. got more of an advantage then It's funny the like was it Sloane Stevens I saw talking about you're talking about some of the initiatives that the French Open have come up with this year and Sloane Stevens was talking about the, the mental health issues and the abuse of players and she said they're, uh, it's getting worse and this year the French Open organisers have offered players AI so artificial intelligence protection I don't know how this works you sign in basically you, you use this app to sign into your account and then it blocks each, each of the social media accounts that and you it, have. it blocks anything that they think any combination of words that might be abusive it's interesting isn't it like I would have thought so players at a Grand Slam wouldn't be logging into their social media accounts anyway but clearly this generation would be yeah. so, so it's something to think about I'm sure during a tournament you have that much downtime and that much time to be on your phone and, and, and 
things to distract yourself, I guess, that that would be a, something important. Yeah, there are there are so many distractions. Obviously, playing those big tournaments like the Grand Slams, like this is a lot of immediate attention. But there is a huge amount of downtime, as you said mm-hmm. there, when you play. Like you know, you have your in the day, you have you might go through your routines of like you know, obviously outside of meal times, it's a warm up and then your match time. But then there's a whole other host of hours of the day to fill. But I think I do think that's really important that the the Grand Slams are addressing that issue with mental health. I'm not sure how yeah. how effective that will be but uh, you can see on the women's side that a few players are now taking um, breaks like we have Muguruza then the Spanish player who's a Grand Slam champion she's taking time away from the court now due to mental health we had Naomi Osaka a few years ago mm. citing mental health as the reason why she took a break you know we're seeing it more and more I think the demands of the, the tennis tour is really really huge on these players uh, and you know they're now deciding and it's good to see they're prioritising their mental health and, and looking after themselves first mm. What about on the women's side um, Schwantek obviously still alive uh, Coco Goff still alive who else do you like and how are they getting on at the moment do you think what's the so I, I'm glad to see, firstly, that we have a bit of rivalry going on in the women's game with uh, Ribikina, Shiontek and Sabalenka. I think Sabalenka's coming in hot now after winning um, Madrid, although it's a bit of a different... Um, the clay in Madrid is played at altitude the tournament so it's, it's much faster which suits her game but I like her chances on the bottom half of the draw Sabalenka uh, the top half with Shiontek and Ribikina that would be make for an interesting semi-final um, Goff obviously last year's finalist she's yeah. going to meet Shiontek in the quarterfinal so Shiontek has a pretty tough road to the final having if she beats Goff in the quarter, she then meets Ribikina. Um But there's there's been a good few matches, a good com- few competitive matches uh, so far in the tournament that we've seen. But I, I still will back Shantak to win. So you think, ideally, we'll see them playing it out in quarterfinal, semi-final. So there's big games to look forward to yes. with the best players who've kind of established themselves over the last couple of years. Because we, like we've talked repeatedly mm-hmm. about what happens in the um, post-Serena world, and we are here now. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, there's a big opportunity for somebody to lay down a marker and, like, make an all-time great name for yourself, right? Yeah. I think Shantek is in the process of doing that anyway uh, since her dominance last year and um, since Ash Barty retired. But it's great to see that these, the likes of Sabalenka mm-hmm. and Rubikina are starting to, to challenge her. And she hasn't had much competition up till now. But like you, the men's side, we had the top three with Federer, Djokovic and Nadal. Now we're kind of seeing, you know, the, these rivalries between Sabalenka and Rubikina and Shantek. And hopefully this will be a, a rivalry that will push the, the game on even more in the coming years. I was watching the Coco Goff match yesterday. Um, Rebecca Masterova the Spaniard player, Spanish player that she beat, mm-hmm. like she's still only nineteen, Coco Goff, but she she's not the finished article. Like I know she got to the final last year, but even in that first set that she lost yesterday, I think the commentators were pointing at her forehand wasn't where it should be. Yeah. So it, it, there's still issues there with her. Yeah, she's as you said, she's not the finished article yet. Um, she's still got a lot of lot of parts of her games to polish. Um, but as she's nineteen, she's so much time for that. But at the same time, you know, she's shown great strides in terms of getting to the final last year she has an amazing all round game but her serve was a serve was a, a bit of an mm. issue last year and then the forehand wasn't firing yet this and hasn't been firing this yeah. year at all she hasn't had too many great results so far this year um, maybe your injury will heal by the time Wimbledon comes around if you can get tickets for Wimbledon <laughs> I'd be doing anything to get tickets for Wimbledon if I could anyone listening please there you go That's, we, we're <laughs> officially sending the shout out and so uh, would you beat the best tennis player at off the ball left handed I presume that's Colin by the way I'm volunteering him here well, 
be. Yeah, <laughs> we need we need to have a, a talks about an OTV hot, hot bracket, and then you would beat them left-handed. I I I'll play them right-handed, and I'll play them left-handed. I know. Left-handed. You can't play right-handed. Well, let's see. You give them the benefit oh. of the both. Humiliation. Oh, no. We need to call Colm out in this one because he's been challenging me. So we play doubles. Okay, and he's not even here. This is the perfect time to do it. We should have doubles. We should have two on one side, and then it's yourself, Jenny, on the other side by yourself. So at least give us we get the full doubles. I let the three of you have it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That sounds great. Jenny, good stuff. Thanks a million. Thanks. Guys. It's eight uh, fifty-two. John Duggan is here. John, good morning to you. Jer, Shane, Jenny, how are we all doing? You're excited, I presume. Uh, Vinny um, was in earlier on saying that he thinks that Ange is the man. Ange Postecoglou, mate. You flaming mongrel. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't think it man- matters who the manager is, as I've said before. And I think ah, but this might be different. No, just when you were out, they suck you back in. Just, just when you were, you thought it was all over. And eighty-three-year-old Al Pacino and his new kids. Yeah, yeah. Wow. what the hell? By the way, can we talk about that for a second? Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. Whatever you do, I'm doing. I'm like, come on, lads. Yeah, the rivalry's over. That made me feel uneasy. It's very. It's not. It's. It's just. It's not. Eighty-three. You know, they can fix that these days. The poor kid. <laughs> yeah, it's not good. Anyway, uh, we got we got sidetracked. Oh yeah. Yeah, no, look, um, Ange, there's always the caveat of Brennan Rodgers and Stephen Gerrard's experience in recent years in the Premier League. Um, I don't, to be brutally honest, watch enough of Celtic to give a really strong opinion, but it's pretty clear that from the the top line that Ange Postacoglu is no-nonsense. He plays attacking football. Um, He's had success in Australia, obviously managed the national team there, and in Japan. And they're going for the treble against Inverness on Saturday, so... From that perspective, uh, you know, he does fit a certain criteria, but it's it's really hard to say how it'll work out once we see um, a higher altitude, if it is him. Plays great football, three yeah. up front. Would Scott, have yeah. all of your attacking players on the field at the well, same time. You might play Richarlison, Richarlison might score a goal. Uh, Scott Munn is the new technical advisor there at Tottenham, and he's Australian as well, so maybe there's a link there already. Um, but I've got to say, reading the papers today, it sounds like... Everything has been sounded out. Yes. They're not making an approach this time without some sense of the cost that there might be. He's only on a rolling deal as well. Yes, look. You know. uh, look, but I, I, I really do maintain now at this stage that Enoch have to sell the club um, for Tottenham to, to be re- revitalised and to have a new future. And I wish them all the best. And I, I really hope, hope they're the best time of their lives. But Let me posit a scenario, right? Yeah. Ange gets the job. They start playing good football. Yeah. Harry Kane stays. Yeah, are you back in? I'm always in, but I but I'm but I'm a moaner. So um, it's 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 <laughs> all Spurs fans are though. It's the TV out the window every day. Um, but it's funny, like when somebody else lags off Spurs, I get kind of protective of it then. So um, I didn't like the ridicule. You don't want to become a, a, an object of ridicule if you have one of the best stadiums in the world, one of the no, best training grounds. <laughs> what, just, one doesn't. You, you know, nobody wants to be the butt of everybody's joke. And that's what Tottenham have become. And that's what annoys me about the uh, leadership of the club, that they're never held accountable for the decisions they make. It's always the manager's fault or this or that. And the recruitment there has not been good enough. And once again, I don't see Tottenham linked with any single player in the Premier League. Chelsea are going through a massive sale of their players now. Mount is going to United. Kovacic could be going to Manchester City. I don't see Tottenham linked with anybody. Arsenal, Cal- Arsenal going to Liverpool. Arsenal have a degree of um, fizz about them at the moment. Whether they get Declan Rice or not, or whoever they get, there's a degree of um, excitement about Arsenal that Tottenham don't have. And it's mad that Tottenham didn't sort this out ages ago because they'd loads of time. They'd loads and loads of time. They sacked Conte ages ago. And actually, the new manager and what his transfer targets would have been 
they could have they could have organised with Celtic back to our channels we're going to take him because he's our number one guy you can have him to the end of the season we understand that's how football works we'd love a few phone calls with him just to check on some uh, transfer targets he can work for your transfer targets for next season we don't we will promise not to take anybody that's already on your board like there's loads of ways to do this in a way that's well run but to your point um, the days of Daniel Levy doing a great deal for um, value for money on the last day of the window are over like that's not the way I, don't, I think it works anymore it definitely doesn't you know, it works the way Brighton and Leicester worked. Like Leicester, notwithstanding the fact that they went down, they built a yeah. great squad. Brighton and Brentford are, are two very well-run clubs. And Brighton are, like Tony Bloom and the former uh, Spurs executive Paul Barber down there, that, that, that's the template you want to be using. Now, maybe Daniel Levy will um, you know, learn from the mistakes that's been made uh, and, and will have a better future going forward. And maybe there might be some investment that comes into the club because especially if Jim Ratcliffe takes over Manchester United. But... I just, I just, uh, one trophy in 22 years um, doesn't, doesn't, yeah. If Kane leaves, John, who, who, like, who's a replacement for him? Like, you look at the options in world football at the moment, they're fairly limited. Yeah, it might be that you don't have a like-for-like option and you play a different style. Yeah, and you'd hope they know more about the options in world football than we do. Yeah, you'd hope so. Um, But Tottenham have signed a lot of flops. Remember, yeah. even the bail money was wasted. The only kind of good player that came well, out of that was Ericsson, really. It was ironic, wasn't it? Last night, Eric Lamella. Yeah, Eric Lamella. Mm. Oh. Yeah, he oh, took Gareth the penalty Bale. well. Took the penalty well. Six degrees of separation. The Rabona man. Gareth Bale. So, uh, Ireland play England at Lords this morning. Yes, um, I was looking through the website, the Lords website, and they've got so many food options. Uh, I, I, like, one of the things I would love to be doing now is either sitting lazily at Roland Garros uh, <laughs> or at Lords, like... Uh, just even one of the courts here, they have the duck, the grub shed, the flying cow, Chunky's pine mash, Chunky's loaded burgers and fries, little Watan, whatever that is, uh, bring and bry, whatever that is as well, and the jerkyard. This is just paradise, really, isn't it? <laughs> bring me the menu, sir. What? No, <laughs> yes. no, everything on the menu. Yeah. Um, I, no ripped jeans allowed, apparently. But you are allowed to wear jeans. No uh, ripped jeans. I mean, that's... Uh, at yeah. Lords. At Lords, yeah. I was, I was going through. surprise me. That's uh, what you are allowed to wear. I was, yes, sir. In this free country, we will allow you to wear the clothes <laughs> that you've purchased with your own money. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 11 o'clock start. Uh, Josh Little arrested. But just to be sitting there, I don't know if you've been to Cricket Lads. I was at the first ever um, ball to be bowled in Ireland in Malahide in a test match in 2018 against Pakistan. I just love the whole concept of... You watch a bit. You watch maybe half an hour, an hour. Then you kind of go wandering have a drink, have a bit of food. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good experience. This is a warm-up for the Ashes. Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, Ireland, I'm just on the Cricket Ireland website here. Uh, they've only played once before. Yes, in a, 2019. In a yeah. test match. And again, it'll be remembered for Tim Murtis outstanding 5 for 13 with the ball. Yeah. As England were bowled out for 85 on day one. I was like, I, do, I, I wish I remembered more about that. <laughs> yeah, well, that's pre-COVID, isn't it? Uh, we, we've only played six tests. We've lost a lot. We're more of a limited overs team, but... It's, it's, look, for Ireland to be playing a test match at all uh, in England is is is, a, is a definitely an achievement for the sport. Yeah, you know, we had George Dockerell, one of the Irish players in the studio last week. Really fascinating guy as well, talking about the mental health supports Cricket Ireland have put in place for some of the players. I think it was was it Philippe Clare's you had to be there episode where he f- honed in on two specific cricket moments or matches he was at. I was just mesmerised because it wouldn't be my it's not my number one sport cricket, but like the way Philippe Clare spoke about it, I was like this man. Has convinced me here. Saw so England West Indies and in you're never going to get allowed back into Monaghan there, Shane. Sixteen yeah, at Trent Bridge. Uh, I just remember it was just the Barmy Army were brilliant. Um, sitting down and I was too young to drink, have a drink, whatever. But there was this lad who just kept on going. Did you say like, when you were sixteen or in 2016? Because I was like, when I was sixteen. Okay, sorry. 1995. 
went to Trent Bridge, saw England against the West Indies. And there was a lad in the crowd and he would go for drinks. And the moment he got up off the chair, the whole of the crowd would be going, yeah, go down, come up with the drinks. And the whole place just gone absolutely mental until he got back to his seat. So that's the kind of stuff that it just goes off in weird directions. And that because people are kind of bored and you know, they're, they're into it for a while and then they're out of it and whatever. And are you saying you weren't drinking because you're, you're being responsible on air or was the World Cup in 1994 not the, the start of your drinking? No, I was only 15 then. Um, I didn't I didn't have a drink really until until I was uh, just finishing school, to be honest. First ever drink was a Woody's Orange Oh, yeah. Woody's Orange. I remember the Woody's, yeah. Uh, what the hell is that, lads? It's uh, alcoholic orange fizzy pops. It was like, oh, we're not marketing to children. We're just making uh, alcoholic fizzy drinks for grown-ups. Yeah, it's like vapes, cigarettes, colourful, uh, flavourful cigarettes. Do you remember where your first pint ever was? My first ever drink was, uh, I'm almost ashamed to admit it, um, I had uh, three cans of cider around a lake in Monaghan Town at the age of 13, 14. Jared, do you remember? Oh, I wouldn't recommend it, obviously, drink responsibly and when you're over age. No, your first drink in a pub, though. First drink in a pub was probably 16, yeah, 16. What did you have? I think it just a pint of whatever the lager was. A pint of Tenants or Fosters or something. Fairly sure I had a Bailey's. <laughs> straight out, straight out, the, straight out <laughs> the gap. I was like, I don't really like uh, most of these drinks that I've tried anywhere else. I'll have a Bailey's, please. <laughs> and uh, they served me. Jesus. Anyway, yeah. I remember uh, first pint was in the didn't mind. didn't you know didn't yeah. didn't happen often after that. No, we no, had no. to like didn't go down great. Did you still drink it? Oh yeah, Christmas Good absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah. Tough. Yeah. Didn't put you off. No, it definitely didn't put me off. <laughs> yeah, my first drink was of Guinness's in the Magic Harbor in Dublin, which no longer exists. Um, I just remember drinking and going, "This tastes weird," but just keep drinking it and just pretend that everything is cool. You got there eventually, because uh, yeah. Anyway, but right. responsibly. Right, uh, OTBAM with you, let lads get the ultimate shave of your money back. Neon Edition is available now. John, good stuff. Thank All you right, lads, for that. Mind yourselves. Right, so after the ads, John Bruin on last night's final. Back after these. You're listening to OTB AM. Four minutes past nine on this uh, Thursday morning's OTBM. I'm glad to turn back to football now. John Bruin, the football writer, joins us on the line. John, morning, how are things? I'm okay, lads. How are you? Keeping well, keeping well. Thanks a lot for joining us. Uh, I know that the Europa League final last night was. Not one for the football purist, possibly, but um, what, what was your general take on it? It was a, it was a bit bonkers. Uh, it was a dog of a game, wasn't it? It was really, really ugly. Um, who are we going to blame for this? <laughs> I've, I've got a good idea. Go on. Uh, I cast my mind back to 20 years ago, watching uh, this, this same competition, though uh, it was called the UEFA Cup back then. Uh, Porto versus Celtic, uh, another dog of a game. And who was the manager there uh, for Porto who won? Uh, also, um, speaking of well, of Irishmen, uh, do you remember the the uh, cast your mind back to when Roy Keane stood on Vitor Bayer? Do you remember this incident? Oh, yeah. Uh, and he was sent off. Well, when Roy did that, I understood because that was Manchester United that night as they were in the return leg, the famous one in which Jose Mourinho, let's name this guy, <laughs> uh, came to the fore, wound the opposition up, and uh, they uh, gamesmanship, we call it these days, don't we? Uh, there's another word that's used these days, but I'm not sure we can say it on your... Um, <laughs> at this time of the morning. Um, yeah, that's what it was all about. And the thing is, um, if we actually 
talk about the tactics. It appeared that once Paolo Dybala's, uh you know, sore muscles had run out, that was the plan. That was the plan. And it didn't go to plan because uh, in Sevilla, you've also got this alchemi- al- alchemical force <laughs> with this competition. No matter who's the manager, no matter who the players are, put them in this position, they could win this competition. It just felt so far out, didn't it? The penalties were inevitable. I mean, as yeah, you said, that yeah. after the Bala goal and then when Sevilla equalised, Sevilla have that period of pressure, but you just feel like penalties are, are always going to happen. Yes, yes, and of course, well, one of the reasons why it, it, it felt so long is that we had an almost record length uh, second period of added <laughs> extra time, didn't we? Did it? Did it go to? It nearly went to a half an hour, didn't it? It went on the, forever. It was a phony war. It, and, 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 and you know, um, this is a season, actually, isn't it? Where there's been a lot of discussion over how much the ball was in play, and obviously the FIFA attacked it briefly. Uh, over in Qatar, uh, but I mean I haven't seen the stats. But how how the ball could not have been in play for more than thirty percent of that game at various points because there were just people lying around and um, you know every time you look someone had a new muscle injury and of course on the sidelines uh, Jose Mourinho who um, it used to be that he used to have what was the guy's name that was his uh, assistant uh, at Chelsea that just had him as his attack dog. He now appears to have got an entire pack of attack dogs to, <laughs> to, to attack the referee. Um, and, and, of course, um, I'm sure you chaps have seen the footage this morning, um, waiting under the stadium, the Ferenc Pushkas Stadium for Anthony Taylor, giving him a bit in the car park. I mean, that's like Sunday League stuff, isn't mm. it? You know, chasing the referee down the, uh, into his car. Um, yeah, welcome... The funny thing is, uh, I think at a distance, quite a few people, including myself, have looked at Jose Mourinho in Rome uh, and seen the devotion that many of the fans have to him. And maybe we've not watched enough Serie A. uh, And we've thought, maybe this guy's changed. (laughs) And you know what? We were completely and utterly wrong. This is Jose Mourinho. This is what it was. This is what uh, he reduced uh, European football to. Uh, in the mid-2000s. This is why, um, okay, Chelsea played some decent football under him, but when he left English football that first time back in 2007, a dark cloud was lifted off English football. And uh, he's been back since, of course, but um, and he's never been able to cast the same spell. But that initial spell of you know, gamesmanship, of... Um, you know, referee baiting of um, doing anything at all costs of um, having actually no respect for his own reputation mm. of, you know, of lying. Okay. The Dibella thing, you know, saying he's going to say Dibella might not be fit to play. Everyone knows that Dibella's going to play. Come on. Let's, let's not be stupid here. <laughs> and and, and, and the, all this stuff is the Jose Mourinho remembered. Leopards don't change their spots. Uh, I'm glad we've had him in the game. It's been great to have a villain. I'm amused to see that uh, PSG are linked with his signature quite heavily. My only instinct there is that they want a wrecking ball in there. Um, And my great wish, actually, uh, of Jose Mourinho is that he does come back to the Premier League and comes back to Chelsea just to complete that particular comedy act as well. (laughs) Um, 
I think we need this guy just for one last turn. He's certainly a story. Uh, Rui Faria was that attack dog that you. That's the guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Funny, yeah, that, that incident last night. I mean, Mourinho was the attack dog when it came to, to Anthony Taylor and seeking him out, as you said, underneath the stadium as, as Taylor was, was going to get his, his, uh, his left home, I guess. Um, that, th- does that sort of thing, you reckon, put Mourinho out of some clubs' minds? Like, will the likes of PSG or other clubs being linked with Jose Mourinho look at that and go, oh, yeah, I forgot. This is, this is what he brings. This is what he's like. Yeah, I think actually there has been this idea that uh, in Rome he's played a little bit better football, um, and in and also uh, Rome, Rome were a club that have never won much in their time, despite being such a big club. Winning the Conference League uh, did seem to refresh Mourinho himself, uh, and it did appear to refresh his reputation. I think there was a lot of happiness, you know, when he when he got out that silly tattoo and stuff like that, and just thinking, you know. Because there is a, there is a there, there is almost a, a fun element to to Mourinho. The problem is that you've always got to be laughing with him. Uh, you know, uh, it, 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 it's very much on his terms. But yeah, I wonder, and it, it speaks to the disorganisation of a club like PSG that they might consider Mourinho, mm-hmm. that they might forget that all the baggage, baggage that comes with him. Because yeah, I mean, you know, that they're run by. Uh, you know, essentially owned by the, the Qatari royal family, uh, who, you know, as we found in the last year, take their reputation very seriously in a world Do you want this guy at your club? You know, because the other thing is, you employ someone like that, and he turns his guns on you, as he did, say, on Daniel Levy, as he's done on Daniel Levy in, in recent weeks, as he's done on Chelsea in the past. Um, you know... Yeah, I think uh, that probably wasn't the best job application I've seen. It was it was the the gesturing and the gesticulating as well on the bench that that nobody was really surprised at, but maybe the the extent of it, John, people were surprised at. Like, yeah. I don't know how many yellow cards was a thirteen or fourteen given out in all, and so many members of that Roma bench and coaching team and Mourinho himself gets in on the act and gets one just before it goes to penalties. Like, quite ridiculous. Every single decision. That that was made, of course, across the course of the 120 plus minutes, uh, and Roma and and their players have clearly been trained to to do this. It's remarkably ridiculous. It is, and that's not a, that's not a squad without talent either. They've got good players. Um, you know, uh, they, they they yeah, it's interesting, is it? And you actually look at all those teams to to which to whom uh, Mourinho is reduced to that. That Porto team back in 2003-4, hugely talented team, brilliant players. Chelsea, mid-2000s, you know, um, Damien Duff among them, great talent in that team, mm. come on. And yet, that's the thing with Mourinho, they've always got that, bearing that scar, that, that stamp of Mourinho. And, you know, he was at Manchester United. Funny enough, actually, I don't recall much of that type of behaviour at Manchester United. No. Which is weird, isn't it? Because uh, we, it's almost as if the, the later period Mourinho has recovered the zest of his early career, uh, and yet the mid part of the career um, that we saw, I mean, actually at Chelsea's second time out, there was a bit of that stuff. There was the, the winding up of the opposition. Obviously, there was the Stephen Gerrard slip in which you know he put on this performance of pretending to be ill before the game, turned up completely unshaven. Uh, I was at, the, at that match actually, and afterwards he 
uh, when a journalist asked whether he'd been um, ill, he breathed on him and said, now you'll see whether I was ill or not, you know, to, to say, <laughs> to spread his germs. Um, he, you know, it's always been a great character for that type of thing. But yeah, actually, Manchester United uh, and Spurs, did we see enough of that guy? Maybe there wasn't enough. Maybe there was that's a, that's a mid-career sag. <laughs> and now, moving into his 60s, he's just thinking... Let's just go for it. And maybe with a lesser group of players, he might think lesser group of players, he sees that as the route to victory. He doesn't see any great tactical plan or anything like that. We know what our Mourinho tactics are. Um, and a big part of those tactics are the gamesmanship. Yeah, of course, he, he just turned 60 in January, Jose Mourinho as well. So maybe he decided at 60 he's going to get back to those uh, old days of his youth and, and he had that quiet <laughs> period in between. Potentially, you even saw him throwing the, the, the runners-up medal into the crowd last night, perhaps to, to no one's surprise after the ceremony. It's just one of those one of those Jose things. I enjoyed your tweet last night, John, as well. Um, if there's any kids watching the Europa League final tonight, this is what top-level European football often looked like in the mid-2000s. And so right you were. Like The only thing that probably brought it back to the modern age was the Sevilla players walking up and kissing the trophy with their phones in hand and taking their little selfies and, yeah. and all the rest. So that's probably the only thing that modernised it. But certainly, from a footballing perspective, it did feel uh, something of old, didn't it? Yeah, I think uh, I think so. I think that there's always been... The mid-2000s was a, actually quite a dark period of, of, of football because I suppose you came from uh, the, the 90s, I suppose. You know, think of it from an English perspective. Obviously, you had Manchester United were always there and thereabouts, so they weren't that great at that period. Um, the Liverpool team that won that tie in Istanbul, no disrespect, Liverpool fans, you know it, not a great team. Um, and then you had the sort of fading of Milan uh, around this time. And so the teams that came through were were teams like like Mourinho's Porto and, and Chelsea. Uh, and I'm sure all of us remember those games between Benitez's uh, Liverpool and Mourinho's Chelsea. Uh, I mean, obviously there were a couple of semi-finals, but there was also the um, they were drawn in a group together. Don't you remember that? I mean, well, yeah. no, no one could possibly remember anything from those games. I think both of them were nil-nil. But you know, just this awful, awful football um, in which uh, I suppose at that point, um, winning at all costs became the uh, became the key to it. And you know. Uh, we should be very thankful to Pep Guardiola for many reasons. And one of them is that the Barcelona team, um, and actually just before that, the, the Frank Rijkaard team maybe, uh, of Barcelona came through and showed that there was a different way of playing the game. And that's what's been so influential over that that last 15 years. And that's the style of play. And then we had the German model that came in with Jurgen Klopp. Um, and that's changed the way that the matches are played and they're played at much um, higher tempo, uh, there's more focus on winning the game the proper way. And, uh, yeah, the, the mid-2000s was that sort of morass of, of gamesmanships, of, uh, of controversial refereeing decisions, of, you know, referees becoming notorious, of referees being menaced in the case sometimes of Chelsea. Uh, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't yearn back for that era. And as I say, in English football, it did feel that when Mourinho left first time out, there was a there was something of a uh, a dark cloud lifted, uh, but that dark cloud's in Italy now for the mm. moment. <laughs> yeah, there's a bit of uh, there's a bit. Of, I know you're a succession fan. There's a bit of Logan Roy off 
Jose Mourinho at the moment. Um, Absolutely, in terms yeah. of likability, <laughs> they're up there together. Uh, John, as well, we should touch on on these Ange Postecoglou to Spurs rumours. Yes. They seem to be a little bit more than than rumours, if you're to believe that the newspapers this morning. But um, certainly, the, the talk being that after the Scottish Cup final this Saturday, that uh, Spurs will certainly ramp up their interest in Ange Postecoglou. Seems like a, a good fit football wise. Is it a move that you expect Ange to make? Yeah, yeah, it was put to me over the weekend that um, what what Tottenham don't want to do is have a Nuno situation. And I think you know what I mean by that, which was, you know, you wait 60 days or, or whatever it was over a summer and appoint Nuno Espirito Santo. Now, great to respect, good manager. I believe he's doing well in Saudi Arabia, but uh, that's not what Spurs fans want. And, and well, it could be box office. And the other thing is, is doable as well, and I think that's part of it, and that's why uh, um, through uh, you know various connections in the game, they've been able to get through to that to him. Um, I think uh, it's very sad for Celtic um, that they were going to. It's been such a great figure for them, hasn't he? He's really transformed them, uh, uh, you know, and it's <laughs> he's going to be a credit to the Premier League when he comes down as well. Um, and uh, you know, totally beloved back in Australia. I remember when he came over to to Celtic, speaking to a few colleagues over there, and they just said, you know, really love the guy. Just hope it works out because you're going to love him too. And uh, <laughs> funny enough, there's a guy with a, a sunny disposition, a positive outlook about football, and uh, you know, compare that to the managers that Spurs have had recently. Um, obviously, Antonio Conte, well, he made his feelings known about Tottenham mm. uh, and uh, the football Tottenham played under him, obviously. And he succeeded uh, with the aforementioned Jose Mourinho. Um, listen, I- I'm not sure that Ange Postacoglu is going to be, um, you know, the, the new uh, Pochettino or anything like that. But I think he might be a manager that brings a bit of a smile, a bit of cheer, the other factor is, of course, that my expectation is that he won't have Harry Kane to deal with because Harry Kane will have left the club. Um, he'd also expect, perhaps, that someone like Harry Kane would look at someone like Ange Postecoglou and think, OK, uh, do I want to work with this guy? He might be a bit below the elite level that Harry Kane wants to work with. That might be a, a mistake on Harry Kane's part. So he's got a rebuilding job to do if he goes in. Yeah, uh, and there is a hell of a lot of rebuilding to do at, at, at Tottenham um, because uh, I mentioned Pochettino. Obviously, he's going to Chelsea. The amount of players or the amount of people still around the club that were back there in that sort of peak Poch era is really quite jarring. Uh, you know, Eric Dyer is still in the team, and with the greatest respect, you would have thought things had moved on from there. Um, so yeah, I, I I I'm all for and going in there I think that's going to be a good appointment it's going to be an interesting appointment <laughs> um, and the feeling I get from from the Spurs fans is yeah it's something different it's something to be positive about and you know the, a guy with that element of charisma that's a good thing as well because the other thing is if you're Daniel Levy um, I mean I go to Spurs quite a lot um, any time Tottenham concede a goal <laughs> the fans start singing about Daniel Levy <laughs> right so they need Someone, a front man who is not, uh, who's going to bring a sunny disposition that means that the club is focused away from turning on Daniel Levy because that's 
that is a big part of the problem with the club. Whether Daniel Levy is the problem uh, behind why the club has underachieved, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not so sure because I think he's done a good job in several uh, circumstances or several spheres. Uh, But someone needs to lift the positivity at that club and and fits the bill for me for that. Yeah, and I I guess a lot of it, as you say, depends on Harry Kane's future. Where do you expect Harry Kane to be playing his football next season, John? I suppose he is being linked to to clubs outside the Premier League, but within the Premier League, I guess Manchester United, the obvious option? I I don't think there's anybody else, really, is there? I mean, okay, we could could play Todd Bowley ball. uh, (laughs) Yeah. Liverpool, unlikely Liverpool appear to have their, their wings clipped out at transfer target wise anyway. Uh, but I don't see him as, you know, that they've got, you know, a, a rack of strikers. Um, yeah, maybe, I, I suppose one, one outsider, and it could be one of those things in which uh, is a demonstration of Saudi power, is that Newcastle go for him and say, if you want to beat Alan Shearer's record, you do it in Alan Shearer's shirt. <laughs> um, but that seems unlikely because I think uh, as as much criticism as Saudi Arabia's ownership of, or co-ownership of Newcastle has received, uh, I think they've been pretty careful about the, the uh, FFP stuff. Um, and I don't think they're going to go hugely over budget. They have got Alexander Isak. They have got Callum Wilson. Um Obviously, Harry Kane will be an upgrade on, on, on at least Wilson. But yeah, Manchester, what's the club that's glaring for a striker? What's the club that you watch every week and think, if only they had a striker to slot that in? <laughs> that's Manchester United, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, it's, it, it has to be done. And it, it, uh, uh, the mood music from Kane, uh, he does a lot of public stuff at, at Spurs, you know, speaking before the game and um, spoke after the after the season. At, at no point has <laughs> it appeared that he's willing to commit to Spurs uh, and the future there. Yeah, and of course it will remains to be seen what the the ownership situation at Manchester United looks like. Jim Ratcliffe appears to be in the the driving seat for now, anyway. But, yeah, yeah. Um, finally, John, the the Mason Mount to Manchester United appears ever closer. Seems to have agreed personal terms with the club. If you're to believe some reports in the media this morning, uh, a good signing for United if that goes ahead. I think so. Yeah, uh, I think. Um, by the sounds of it, Eric Tan Hag is very taken with him. Uh, and if you're a Manchester United fan so far, you'd have to trust Ten Hag's judgment on the players he's brought in. Um, give or take Valt Vekhorst, bless him. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we could we could see what what was attempted there. Um, yeah, I, I suppose my only concern with Mount is there is a bit of a... There's a bit of a, bit of a catch-a-falling star thing, really, because... Two years ago, he was a very important player when England were, you know, reached the Euros final. Um, and um, he's one of those players that within the game has had a growing reputation. Obviously, he had the patronage of uh, Frank Lampard at Derby, at Chelsea. Um, but he struggled beyond that. He struggled... Uh, I mean, Tuchel obviously yeah, made him an important player as well. I think there's been injuries. I think he's been a bit tired by having to play almost every game for a long time. Um, and the other thing is, you can't really blame anybody uh, for getting lost amid what's happened at, at Chelsea. Um, I think we're going to see a few players maybe leave that club and shine at other clubs because they are so talented. 
Um, and I don't see why Mount shouldn't be one. And, and, and the issue, of course, with Mount is I would expect that Mount was quite happy to remain a Chelsea player, was happy to sign the new deal. But when uh, the, the new ownership came in and decided to... But they decided that they knew better. They knew how to reconfigure the transfer market. So they would sign players on eight-year deals and offer them uh, contracts that were, um, say let's say, mid-market level uh, for, for a Premier League player over those deals. If you're Mason Mount and you've been a star player of England's uh, run to the Euros final, you've been a star player in Chelsea winning the Champions League, you don't want mid-market money and you don't want to sign an eight-year eight, eight deal. Uh, if you want to make enough money from your career, you want to, you want to move up to the you know, 200,000, 300,000 bracket. If Chelsea aren't going to offer him that, and that appears to be the case, then Mason Mount has to leave the club. And I think uh, a lot of Chelsea fans would be very sad to see a player who, let's see, you know, Mason Mount could conceivably have been Chelsea's captain for the next almost decade or so. Mm. But uh, that appears to have not been the case and they've let him go. Um, my only concern is sometimes players don't transfer so well when they move you know, from north to south, but we've seen it. Manchester City, that uh, in particular, that's not been so much of a problem. Uh, so let's see, and you know, he'll be living in that that great big footballers enclave in Cheshire, <laughs> uh, where they all live these days. And um, I'm sure he'll be quite happy there. Uh, but yeah, a good player. Um, not sure he is, uh, say, the Frankie de Young level that I think Ten Hag wanted back uh, when he started. I, I'm sure they might try and pursue that one as well. Uh, but you get in Mason Mount, you get in Harry Kane, you get a decent full-back, say, and you get a goalkeeper. The Manchester United have had a strong summer. Uh, but um, I wouldn't be surprised if if you and I were talking uh, at the end of August and they still haven't signed Harry Kane and uh, they've only signed a couple of players because, as you say, this ownership question uh, does um, hang very heavy over what Manchester United are going to do. Absolutely. Uh, John, really interesting stuff as always. Thanks many for hopping on this morning. No problem. Uh, really enjoyed it. Cheers. Brilliant stuff. John Bruin there, football writer, of course. Always interesting chats with uh, with John. Kathleen McNamee has joined me back in studio. Kathleen, how are things? I'm good. How are you? Keeping well. The big seat suits you as well. I know. I do enjoy the big seat. I was hosting, was it two weekends ago now? And I was sitting here and I was like, oh, you can oh. feel the power. It is, it is. There's power in that seat. Yeah. The, the temptation to stop yourself or to swing on it, though, is far too much. You yeah. kind of have to like mentally say to yourself, don't swing in the seat. Don't There's swing in the seat. Yeah. It definitely is the most comfortable seat. Which, oh, yeah, which definitely. tells you about the power in that seat. <laughs> you know, 100%. Um, I did want to mention as well the F1 pod, which started yesterday. So we had our first episode um, really fascinating chat so it's episode one it's a new new thing we're trying uh, there's going to be 18 episodes between now and the end of the season David Kennedy the former Irish Formula 1 driver from Sligo no less I know I loved listening to that actually yeah. I hadn't known that much about him until I saw he was on the podcast and I saw he was from Sligo and I was like oh. yeah he was a really talented driver like Formula 3 and, and uh, he had a short enough career in Formula 1 back in, in the early 80s but mm. uh, still some serious experience like he's he's driven around that track in Monaco so to have him on the episode yesterday was brilliant and Rebecca Clancy of course the motor correspondent for the Times and the Sunday Times was on with us as well talking Max Verstappen's performance in Monaco last week or last weekend uh, previewing the Spanish Grand Prix this weekend and Fernando Alonso's performances so far this season rumours of Lewis Hamilton to Ferrari which 
Rebecca poured a bit of cold water on yesterday, but you get the podcast in uh, in all the usual spots, um, and it was really fascinating. So it's around forty five or fifty minutes in duration. Stick it on your car journey, whatever else. And is it going to be around all the Grand Prix, or will there be like previews? Reviews? Yeah, we'll kind of do. We'll it'll be every Wednesday, so mostly race weeks. I know there are a couple of gaps in between, but some of those gap weeks we'll kind of do little bits and bobs, mm. uh, the best tracks to to go to as a fan, the, the favorite sporting or Formula One documentaries and books and that sort of thing. So we'll create a few episodes as well. Um, not to rival the Koi Gig pod, of course. Oh, of course to, not. To be, to be of course not. Symbiotic <laughs> in, in its relationship. Um, are you heading to any of the guys this weekend? Uh, no, sadly not. I don't think so. I actually think I might be in here doing ah. steering the ship a little bit on right. Sunday. So I'll be checking in on all the guy that's happening. But I'm not. You're heading to the Monaghan game? Heading to Monaghan, Claire, and Clonus, uh, which I'm excited about. It's funny that all of a sudden, if you get something out of your first game, as Monaghan and Sligo both mm-hmm. did, you're all of a sudden thinking, right, well... <laughs> We can do something here. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) One more win from your remaining two games and you're absolutely through to something. Yeah. And some guys, you'll you'll finish second or third, probably. Well, even for like Sligo at the moment, it's basically just keep the score lines down against Roscommon in Dublin because it's probably going to come down to points difference. For sure. Unless there's some strange result. I don't know, like Kildare managed to do something against Dublin. Which, Which I wouldn't rule out. Not completely, uh, but I feel like they're going to be annoyed after the Roscommon game, and especially the whole narrative around it that you know Roscommon played them at their own game and were better at it. Like that's going to get under the dub skin completely. The wounded beast that is Dublin. Yeah, it's funny because Jer was a couple of weeks ago very much of the of the mind that Dublin were the favourites for the All Ireland, but mm. has rolled back completely. Like yesterday in the power rankings with Tommy, anyone who saw it, yeah, certainly a rollback. But I can see that because the Dublin's performances. People keep saying this: oh, they need to. You know they're going to peak at the right time, yeah. but they're not really. I think you have to be peaking around now to to have any chance. That's not to say that they won't come good in the next couple of games. Yeah, but certainly if you're only scoring one eleven uh, in Croke Park, that's not very Dublin esque. So well, it is interesting that. the narratives around say like the bigger teams, like the result that Mayo had against Kerry, and everyone's like, yeah, no, this is exactly the time that Mayo, you know, need to be turning the gears and getting into things. And then with Kerry in Dublin, everyone's like, ah, oh, no, they still have a bit of time. They, you know, they might take a few more weeks and they'll be fine they'll definitely do a run then and it's just funny how like if Mayo hadn't have done it <laughs> what would we be saying about them now yeah we're always waiting for this run to happen uh, it hasn't just happened just yet uh, should mention as well the news coming in from the, the cricket I know John was talking about the, the food mm. and the menu of the cricket uh, the England team have been delayed by a Just Stop Oil protest en route to Lords, Lords. so that's a possible delay to the start of that cricket against Ireland so yeah the Just Stop Oil causing some um Issues at various Uh, sporting events? Yeah, it's Epson this weekend as well. There's supposed to be protests at that too. Um, Right. I saw the chief talking about it and he was kind of imploring them not to protest. And I always think it's funny when people come out and say these things. I was like, you're kind of almost just baiting them into actually doing it. Yeah, there was a stoppage at a uh, rugby match the weekend of the Premiership final Mm. in England had had an issue the weekend. And of course, the the untouchable snooker at the Crucible <laughs> not too long ago was absolutely destroyed on one of those. It's probably days. one of the most dramatic ones as well. Oh, because you can hear, it's funny, you can hear the crowd as well when the, yeah. when the person, certainly the, the referee Olivia Martel on one table stops the woman from getting onto the table. I think she tries to handcuff herself or tie herself to the, one of the pockets. Uh, but then the guy, obviously, on the other table caused absolute carnage in that match between Joe Perry and, and Robert Milkins and just orange powder or dried mm. paint, I think it was over the table completely such an iconic photo oh it's, ama- it's an amazing photograph yeah. it just contrasted with the green table and you're like this is fantastic and the darkness of the room as well and yeah 
Ah, oh, just something else. And you can hear people in the crowd swearing at the guy on the, on the table <laughs> as well, because obviously they can't... They can't you don't the want to annoy snooker officiants. Oh, listen, if there's one sport that is untouchable, leave it be, <laughs> uh, please. But uh, on that note, 9.33am on this uh, Thursday morning. Thank you, Kathleen, for no everything this you morning. Uh, O2BM with Gillette Labs, get the ultimate shave or your money back in the online edition available now. On tomorrow's show, Gilly Flaherty will preview the Champions League final. Looking forward to that one this weekend. Daniel Harris will look ahead to the first ever Manchester Derby FA Cup final. Hard to believe. Alan Quinlan on the Ireland squad. Uh, the Friday Fire Pit and plenty more besides. Right now, here is some highlights from last night's football show. Have a tremendous Thursday. OCB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition, available now.